today oh, it's going to get complicated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I have this is this is actually uh, my grandfather's shot glass. So this like I don't know how old it is really, but at least 1960s. Um, shot so, glass. My family's <laughs> Irish. What do you want? <laughs> It's actually not a shot glass. It's it's the uh, sort of the tumbler, like you'd get a shot in and it would be, you know. Yeah. But it's, anyway, so it is gin, um, a, a generous amount. Probably too much, but whatever. Um, and grapefruit juice and soda water. In is there too much on a Sunday a night when muck. you have to work early in the morning? I don't have to work tomorrow. I'm taking next week mostly off. We're actually going to be uh, down in your area. Um, oh, nice. And I have been given the responsibility of arranging for us to meet somewhere to do something. Mm. Um, Cindy has suggested uh, bubble tea at the mall. I have no idea how you feel about bubble tea. I don't like it that much. So, I honestly actually haven't had it before, but no? I really don't care. Basically fruit juice with tapioca in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a while since I've actually seen you in person. So Yeah. That'd be nice. You know, it just occurred to me that I'm pouring all of these liquids and likely to get slightly intoxicated, like basically right over top of my computer. This may not be wise. I should perhaps do this... Before the episode starts, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm shocker. Uh, just drinking the the ciders today again. I'm saving myself for for Thursday. We're doing a big staff event Thursday, and I'm. I sense that things might go sideways. Uh oh. Are are you laying off most of your staff? No, no, no. Our staff events just. I mean, they're. They were actually like less tame before I started working there. Oh, um, you know, well, you are in advertising I mean, was technically, right? Less so now, but you know, Kinda. when I started, like it, it was a full service ad agency that had was in the process mm -hmm. of turning into a full web shop and uh, has just become more that. And you know, we haven't had a major staff event since before the the pandemic. So, so this is a gin. <laughs> <laughs> So we're all going to wow. have a big barbecue and like a bunch of us, I think I mentioned before, are going to kind of sit around the campfire and have a little bit of a jam session yeah. going and should be fun. But, you know, we always get a little tipsy during those. It's actually nice to have a job where you can think about, hey, I'm going to spend uh, an evening with my coworkers and not be, Ugh, I have to spend an evening with my coworkers. Yeah. Because we've yeah. definitely had those jobs. <laughs> we definitely have. We definitely yeah. have. So we don't really have a topic today. Um, so we're actually recording like less than a week after the last time we made up the second half of our recording after an act of God. But <laughs> it's like, what, three days or four days or something? I don't know. Something. Yeah. But uh, you mentioned something yesterday. And it got the wheels turning, and I thought we would do a full pod bag episode. But an AI overlord pod bag episode where all the questions come courtesy of uh, chat GPT because that's popular and should earn us lots of clicks and stuff, right? 
Yeah, whatever. It's nerdy. Yeah, whatever. I've, I, I, for one, welcome our new AI overlord. Right. No, I got, uh, I've talked about chat GPT before, and I actually think, you know, once you ignore the buzzwords and bullshit, like, I think it's actually pretty cool. I'm not worried about my job. Maybe my job will change and adapt in the future. But for the type of stuff I use it for, which is what it's built for, a language model, you know, just as a hobby, it's been pretty cool. So I asked, I gave it a little bit of context, like, here's our show, here's what it's called, general discussions, you know, spit out some questions. And they did. And about two thirds of them were great. Uh, A third of them were just repetitious crap. Asking, you know, conflating nerddom with a certain segment of nerddom. Like there was about four questions about like the type of cosplay maybe you have have worn and I have. I have actually done cosplay. Um and it it like it only came up because I was watching um an interview with Carrie Elwes today about uh they did the reunion thing for the Princess Bride. The Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. And we did our 10th wedding anniversary. We uh, renewed our vows and we did it dressed up as characters from well I was dressed as the Dread Pirate Roberts but it was it was a pirate wedding um mm-hmm. and everyone who came had to dress up. So I, I guess I, I technically have done cosplay. I guess I've technically done it too. And actually in some really, really nerdy ways. Um, I think when you do Halloween as an adult, like even though it's Halloween, like anytime you're throwing a costume on at that point, like dude, you're over 16, it's, it's cosplay. Kinda. And I put a lot of effort one year. Uh, this was back in the call center days, but uh, when I was running a training department and um, our department decided to take it really, really seriously. And I like scratch built. So like put the effort into, you know, making a costume, which is why I think it really qualifies as cosplay to play like a old Republic era Sith Lord. Oh, Mark Aragnos. Big like horns and shit and like Okay. I turned a turned a mag light into a lightsaber. Yeah. Hey. Hey. Yeah. Well we're nervous. You don't look I impressed. Mean, yeah, you don't I mean, look impressed at all. I, I mean fuck you. I, I mean I was I was there, I guess, but I don't like I don't remember this and I don't I haven't seen any photos, so I'm not sure it ever happened. No, no, no. This wasn't this was uh the other company. So. Oh, okay. All yeah, right. yeah. You weren't there for that. I never worked for them. You did not. Well, to be fair, I never really worked for stream either. I was employed there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so uh, I did a sort of a, just a cursory skim of the questions, selected a few, uh, refined a few to kind of be tabletop theme, but most of them are just general nerddom. And we're going to go through them. And if the episode sucks, it's your fault. uh, Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, I guess. I mean, I'm sh- I, I'm sure that Ian will enjoy it, and I'm not sure that anyone else is watching. So, we're good then. Yeah, we're we're fine. <laughs> Hi, All Ian. right. First question from Chat GPT: If you could attend any fictional school or academy, which one would you choose, and what subject or skill would you study? Ah, that's a hard one, you know? I mean... And this is why it's nerdy, not the answers to the questions, but how we overthink the question and... and, Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
This is, I mean, I mean, your first, your first instinct, just because of, of kind of how much an academy sort of school centered thing it is, would be Hogwarts. Like, I'm not, I'm not very much of a Harry Potter fan. I, I enjoyed the movies. I, I the, the books were reasonably good. Uh, like, I don't, hmm. I don't know. And it's funny because I can't really think of any other ones off the top of my head. So I have to provide caveats for my answer. Can I take the stuff that I've learned there and bring it back and use it? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, and and this is probably going to come up again a couple times in in these series of questions because I'm predictable, but like Starfleet Academy. Could I study engineering at Starfleet Academy and take that knowledge and bring it back and do something with it? That'd be neat. I mean, assumably, if you're if you're creating rules for the question like that, you would also have to say, "Can I go learn magic at Hogwarts and come back and and yeah. cast spells and shit?" Either one of those would be good answers, I think. I don't. Here's the funny thing, though. Like, if I was if I was to go to a fictional certain, if we expand the question to the idea of okay, we're going to enter some fictional universe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure if like there's an academy there that I could study at, but I mean, I would much prefer to go to somewhere uh, like Tolkien's universe than uh, Star Wars or Hogwarts or really even anywhere else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Or the, the, you know, like whatever high school the Teen Titans go to. Mm-hmm. That'd be neat. Yeah, and it, you know, getting back to analyzing the question, I actually asked this question of my wife today, just because I was oh. talking a little bit about what we were doing, and she immediately went Hogwarts, right? It's the but first where I'm thinking about, well, what are the things that I can learn there, and what can I do with this knowledge that I'm unlocking? She's just like, no, I want to eat in that big dining hall thing they had in the movies, and like have owls and magic shit flying around. Like she's totally thinking of it from an experiential standpoint. Yep being in that like immersed in that universe and i'm just like i'm, I'm going to school to learn shit i'm such yeah a well and i i like i approach it from sort of a same similar angle too is like what is what are the other students going to be like like because my experience in high school was the stuff that i learned in class was or i mean even like university college right um most of the things that i learned i learned from other students mm-hmm so I'm I'm really thinking about this from the point of view of like what students do I want to spend time with? And honestly, it's not the people from Starfleet. No, actually, yeah. Like I gotta clarify that because like Starfleet, if it wasn't for the ability to maybe learn something interesting that I could bring back, would be the lamest answer. Like one hundred percent, because I'm either just gonna end up lame or recruited into some sort of evil secret organization that's taken over Starfleet this year because well I mean like those are the only two options yeah well I mean what other like even even if it's not ones that we want to attend what other fictional like academies or schools can we think of like I'm thinking of the Jedi Academy but oh I mean that one's pretty that one's pretty stretching the definition of academy but like it's got it in the name yep it's the Jedi Academy Ooh, that's a good one. Um, so, do you know much about the um, Strixhaven uh, stuff from 
uh, was pulled over from Magic the Gathering into newer uh, D and D campaign setting. There's isn't there uh, a board game that uh, Strixhaven has, it lends its name to? Or oh, no, that's Gloomhaven. Sorry, that's Gloomhaven. Yeah, no, Strixhaven. Imagine. I mean, obviously, it's inspired by things like Harry Potter, but it's not. It's not necessarily like such a for kids kind of thing. Oh, oh, there was oh, there was a series of books that I read. Oh my God, what were they called? Oh. My wife put me onto them, I think, and there was a series. It was a, uh, it was a magic school, um, and Harry Potter is highly derivative of a whole bunch of earlier work, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I remember reading some of it when I was in school. But there's there's an academy, and it's it's very similar to Hogwarts, except it's a little bit more grown up. It's like a like a, a collegiate type academy, mm-hmm. um, and the main character is a young lady who has completely mundane parents, um, but gets a scholarship to the school and then shows up and her roommate is like super magical and they do all these things. There's all this, like it's literally the same story. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really good and I can't remember what it was called. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean the Jedi Academy would be, like the, the actual Academy would be super lame, but you know, coming at it from your point of view, think of what you could learn. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. feel the power. Yes, let the hate <laughs> flow through you. <laughs> All right, second question: If you could have a conversation with a fictional character, who would it be, and what burning question would you ask them? Mm. It would be um, the youngest prince of Amber. I would ask him, why a dozen eggs? Have you ever read Roger Zelazny's Nine Princes of Amber? I highly recommend them. They're they're very much a product of their time. You can skip over all of the... uh, uh, um, What is it? Uh, Stream of consciousness poetry that's in the middle of everything. Um, Who is a big sell. Oh yeah, you can you can literally skip it. It's like you know, okay, it's half a page, whatever. Just skip that. Get back to the meat of the story, because the story is interesting. The world building is interesting. The idea that all of reality as we know it is a reflection of one particular place, and the way that he develops over the course of I think it's like nine books or something, um, how that came to be, and how everything fits together, and why people are doing what they're doing, and there's an awful lot of intrigue that happens sort of behind the scenes. Where it's like they're friends, now they're enemies, now they're friends, now they're enemies. Like it's almost like uh, like nine hundred two one zero style of like people are friends and then enemies, and and it's like like they've forgotten what they did. But it makes sense. Like it's actually done in an adult enough way that it's like I hate you because of now I understand why you were behaving that way, and now we're friends because of something else. Anyway, um, it's been a while since I've read it. Now I I actually kind of want to go back and read it. <laughs> All right, you said we needed to say something controversial, Uh-oh. so I'm going to do it. Uh oh, unpopular opinion incoming. I would have a conversation with capital G God, and my oh. question would be, "What the fuck, man?" I mean, yeah, but which one? 
That's why I said capital G God. Oh, okay. So whether, you know, you, you take the atheistic or, or whatever stance and just be like, yeah, it's a fucking made up story, invisible sky fairy or whatever, or maybe it exists in our representation and portrayal of him is just purely fabricated, which it is. Read into that how you want, but I would talk to God and ask him, what the fuck are you thinking? <laughs> Dude, uh, I don't know. Or, I re- or you know what? If I was going to have a conversation with capital G God, I would ask him, "Why are you interested in how much I masturbate?" <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, if this capital G God existed, I'm sure he would say, or she would say, "I'm not." Why the fuck yeah. do you think I give a shit? I don't know, man. It's written in your book. Like the book that is supposed to be the instructions for how he's like literally like when I think about you, don't touch yourself. Fan fiction. <laughs> the New Testament is Twilight. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's probably controversial enough. All right. <laughs> Sorry for our audience of three and I've pissed one of you off statistically. You'll be mm. missed. <laughs> uh, hit like All right, and next subscribe. question. Hey, blame chat GPT. That's true. Yeah. Chat GPT is an atheist. Like, I can only answer the questions I'm asked. What do you want me to lie to you? <laughs> All right. There's going to be a few ways to answer this question, and we're probably going to have to explore them. If you had to survive a zombie apocalypse, what three fictional characters from any universe would you want on your team? Mm. Now, there's the lame answer. Superman. Right. The lame answer is, well, let me just make the zombie apocalypse not a thing, right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, Tanya, I asked this question of her too. We just did a little bit of a trial run. I wanted to see what she thought of them. And she's like, oh, well, I just have Thanos with the Infinity Gauntlet. Just snap. Snap the zombies away. And I'm like, okay, that evades the sort of question. But, like, it's a good answer. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I could be on Team Capital G God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Or I Superman be- or, or whatever. I, capital G God would, like, do an immediate team kill. It was like, I brought the zombies to kill you, dude. <laughs> yeah. You know, or you could try and come up with, a, okay, we're going to assume that the zombie apocalypse actually happens and that we can't stop it. In that context, who would you want to have on your team? <sighs> I think that's a more interesting, interesting sort of way. Like I would have picked Q from Star Trek, you know, because just like, oh yeah, no zombies anymore. But yeah, you know what? I think I think I want um, um, the the two guys from Shaun of the Dead. What are, what the heck are their names? Uh, uh, you know the guys I'm talking to. It's like the new Scotty and uh, and his yeah, his so, comedy partner. Yeah, I don't remember the character names in it, but no, neither do I. Well, it's it's Sean. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Sean. Simon Pegg. But Simon, yeah, I, I'm I'm you know like I'll stop doing it when you stop laughing. Um, I, my wife. Oh wait, fictional characters. You know what? Yeah, I, I don't want to go through as I don't want to go through a zombie apocalypse without my wife. Yeah. I really don't. But um the um L from The Last of Us is it is that her, what's her name? Ellie. 
Ellie. Ellie, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Sean and Ellie and hmm. Who else? Fictional characters. Oh, um, Meg from Family Guy. Because <laughs> she deserves a break. Uh, all right. My answers to this are... Uh, I'm obviously thinking about it too much. The correct answer for number one is obviously something that's not alive, at least not in the traditional sense. Data from Star Trek. You know, one of the Terminators, like a machine. I am Groot. You know, with the, 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 I, I'm going to place like parentheses around the on your team part, right? So the assumption is they're, they're not going to fuck me at the first opportunity. <laughs> <They're>, <laughs> right. But I would choose something that's like, you know, not going to be, not going to be harmed by these zombies in any real sense. Seven of nine. Then I would choose, I'm actually going to go with a different Star Trek character. I'm going to go with Dr. Phlox from Star Trek Enterprise. Uh, and Is that the, reason, the holographic doctor? No, that's that's Voyager. No, he's a alien doctor, Denobulan. Ah. Of all the doctor characters in Star Trek, he felt the most like a doctor. Like, So I want him there to, A, keep me alive from all of the rest of this stuff. Yeah. And B... He's the the Star Trek doctor that I think could probably like with duct tape and, and popsicle sticks, figure out this zombie shit and fix it eventually, <laughs> you know, without like omnipotent superpowers. And I don't know about the third. The third would just be entertainment value, I think. My I wife, to... because, you know, I have yeah. to answer that. <laughs> yeah. Fictional characters now. Oh, wait. Yeah. Fictional characters. <laughs> She's from Canada. You wouldn't know her. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right, next question. Uh, describe the nerdiest collection you've ever seen or had, whether it's action figures, comic books, or something else entirely. Hmm. Um, I did have a friend and friend has to go in finger quotes in odd, like grade three or something who had a transformers collection. Right. And if you think about like, you know, six, seven year old kids, right. You play with your toys. This kid did not play with his transformers. They stayed new in the box. That was a very nerdy collection. Not so much because of what it is. Cause I would have loved to have a transformers collection just because of the way he treated it. It's like, now, was these that things something are... that was driven by him understanding yes. how collecting worked? No, that was something that was driven by him. And I like, honestly, I think it was probably just like an OCD thing. He couldn't stand to have his stuff touched by anyone else. So it stayed in the box. Hmm. Um, like, I can't think of any, like, I don't know anyone really who has much of a collection of anything. I mean, my grandmother had a collection of spoons. <laughs> yeah, some of them actually were... had a, a, a little bit of a spoon collection going when I grew up. It was a thing. It was the style at the time. 
All right. Yeah. What about you? So I'm I'm going to cheat with my answer, <gasps> but it's okay because it's one of the things where like if I won the lottery, like a big lottery, it's like one of the things that would be on my list of ways to waste money. So technically I'm going to go with a museum, but not like a, a capital M museum. Uh, so a guy by the name of uh, Neil Thomas in the UK uh, runs a YouTube channel. RMC used to be called Retro Man Cave. Anyway, he's built essentially like this really cool sort of open to the public retro computing museum, like going back Ooh. to the very old days. And, and it's built in such a way that like everything's on display, but you're, you're meant to actually interact and play with it. It's got like old computing magazines that it's like pulleys out and read them, you know, going right back to, you know, Altair and, and before. Mm. And it's been on my list of things that if I ever won the lottery, I would love to do. Obviously, I, you know, I'm talking about focusing, kind of going through a midlife crisis about trying to reacquire some of the things that I've lost from my childhood, some of my old computers and gaming systems and stuff. But I'd like to sort of take that to the logical extreme and build something that, you know, like you can't have a conversation with a lot of younger people about what computing and 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 gaming and entertainment was like back then because it's almost impossible to like draw the parallels and sometimes it's just something you have to experience there's well a lot of i think a lot of the the gap in understanding is probably in the idea that it, it was such a niche hobby right mm -hmm. it wasn't like everyone had a ps5 and you just hop online and play with people like you had to you had to find somebody. Like I literally remember in high school specifically telling my friends, do not tell my parents that we're playing Dungeons and Dragons because mm -hmm. they bought 100% into that satanic panic bullshit. Do you remember the chip tracts? And all, it was the same thing. It was all like, you know, video games are going to rot your brain. It's like, what, in the same way that TV rotted your brain? Like, Yeah. My parents were never like that. If anything, they really encouraged me getting into that kind of stuff. But I was certainly the kid at school that was trying to enable other kids that had those parents. Yeah. Like, come here. We're running a Jumpman Junior Ladder. It's great. You're going <laughs> to love it, you know? No, you don't need to go out and play on the swings at recess or whatever it is you're doing. Stay First in here. It's free. Then you yeah. gotta pay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the. It's probably not the nerdiest collection, but it is like it's pretty cool. My nerdiest. I would collection. really, really love to have a model airplane collection. Be super neat. All right. Next question. What is the most outrageous fan theory you've ever come across for a TV show, movie, or book series? And did you secretly hope it was true? Okay, second part first. Yes, I 100% hoped it was true. And it was the uh, 
Jar Jar Binks. Darth, Darth Jar Jar, yeah. Darth Jar Jar. I mean, it was it. The the bits and pieces of the theory that I saw put together hung together so well and could have been blended into the universe so perfectly, and it would have it would have exonerated the entire Jar Jar arc where you're like, oh, that's why he was there. That's why he always showed up. That's why he you know sort of inserted himself yeah. into the whole situation. It would have been great. I think that was the obvious answer to this question. Yeah. The sad um, it's thing is too clever we, to have been George Lucas though, like from oh, just yeah, even a writing yeah. perspective. So Well, who was the the stupid guy that we got in the the first, you know, was like, hey, your face is half melted and you're a Sith Lord. Who are you? Where did you come from? Did I have to watch all of the cartoons to figure out who you are? <laughs> like I yeah. So we talked about this at work, so I think you probably remember it. After The Phantom Menace came out, but before uh, Attack of the Clones, there was this theory that basically suggested that it wasn't Anakin Skywalker that became Darth Vader. It was Obi-Wan. Oh, yeah. You know, like how how we see Obi-Wan sort of embracing anger and stuff in his fight with Darth Maul at the end after Qui-Gon. And... Yeah, essentially, you know, that they'd swapped places. Anakin assumed his name so that he could distance himself from Luke, but still watch over him. And that was one that I kind of wanted to be true because it would have. Part of the problem with the prequels and part of the problem with any sort of prequel is that generally speaking, you know what the end of the journey is. Yep. You know, and that would have. It would have been an elegant twist. Yeah. Yeah. Again, probably too clever for for Lucas doing the writing at the time, but like the setup was there where you could yeah. have done it and it would have felt right. George Lucas does some really neat or or did some really neat things as long as there was someone there to turn his batshit crazy into mm. something that was watchable. Yeah. Right? Cuz you you need batshit crazy like the genesis of any kind of great idea oh, is Oh, absolutely absolutely crazy but when it's just like oh okay well he was successful last time so we'll let more of his crazy through well didn't work out so great yeah but and part of the thing is is that george lucas is a great idea guy he's not a very good director no and you know i think that's true for a lot of idea people like they 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 you have to sacrifice some of the, the the social stuff sometimes the i'm I don't have time to be good at talking to human beings and talking like human beings because, you know, I'm dedicating everything I've got to this other shit and I'm good at it. Oh, like inventing Facebook. (laughs) So in his case, like writing screenplays and, and dialogue and directing actors, like you could have taken conceivably the prequel, like, you know, the, the basic sort of like, here's what's going to happen. Here's, you know, even like story block it out. And then yeah, handed here's that some to, funky characters. Yeah. Like handed that to somebody that could do a great screenplay and a good director. And even with the boring stuff, like, you know, trade federation disputes and Senate That's... discussions and stuff like that. Like you could have turned it into something good in the right hands. Yeah, like the potentials there. 
all of that stuff is excellent backdrop stuff. Like the trade federation thing could could just be, hey, there's a trade federation dispute. We don't need to know what it's about. We don't care. Tell mm-hmm. us who's involved and the broad outlines of what they're doing, and then show us the fighting. Right. Yeah. Part I, I, I'm one of the analyses that I saw of the prequels uh, was like sort of a. Uh, a comparison of how often you saw lightsabers in the original trilogy versus the prequel trilogy, right? And it was sort of a special thing that happened uh, in in the original, in 4, 5, and 6. Mm-hmm. And in 1, 2, and 3, it was like on screen all the time. And that's not necessarily a problem. It's just a, a matter of degree, right? Like you don't you don't hand a lightsaber to a bunch of six-year-olds, you know, like they're they going to be a Jedi. Oh my God. <laughs> right. Like I was willing to suspend disbelief. I was thinking about this earlier, actually, um, of, you know, somebody swinging around, you, you know, a, a blade of light that is sort of consuming itself into a black hole contained in the handle of the lightsaber. When it was, okay, these Jedi are people who know sort of the location of everything that's in the universe around them at all times. They're probably not going to cut their own face off. When you hand it to a four-year-old, the very first thing they're going to do is cut their friend's face off. Right? I don't know if you've interacted with any four-year-olds, but they're monsters. raised a lot of kids. Yeah. Like, children are monsters. You have to teach them not to be monsters. I don't know. Don't let the NRA hear you talk like that. I mean, you can give them an M16. Just don't give them a lightsaber. Right. Okay. You know, an M16 has got a safety switch on it. All right. So while we're talking about uh, lightsabers, I'm going to skip ahead a couple questions then, because we did have one that was lightsaber specific. If you could have a lightsaber from Star Wars, what color would it be? And what would you use it for in your daily life? Are you wearing pants? I am wearing pants. Okay. It's, that's an important distinction. I know you can't see all of that, but I have this in the back of my office. So it is Darth Maul's double-ended lightsaber, and I would use it as a nightlight. And I do. <laughs> so what is the official canon for how lightsabers are powered now. Like I know that's, you know, kyber crystals and stuff like that, but like, what's the power source? I don't know what it is now because they, all of the, all the stuff that I knew came from the books, Mm -hmm. which is now legacy and no longer canon. So I don't, I don't know if this might be the only thing in the star Wars universe that has not been explained. Please don't give them any ideas. They will try and explain it and it will suck. Mm Mm-hmm. Because whether it's something inherent about the kyber crystal itself or whether it's something else that's physically powerful, like a fancy, fancy power cell or something like that, like to me, that's the valuable part of the lightsaber. Uh oh. Are you going to power a small city? No, I mean, shit. Certainly we should be able to use that to like fucking stop burning coal or some shit. I don't know. Maybe. Clean-ish power. Maybe. Who knows? I mean, it might be that the, you know, the control over the force is the only thing that stops the entire galaxy from getting cancer. 
Like maybe maybe it's powered by cell phones. <laughs> Fucking five G, man. Yeah. All right. Uh, if you could invent, this is going to be the same type of shit. If you could invent a gadget or technology from a sci-fi movie, uh, I'll say, or a TV show, uh, what would it be, and how would it change the world? I think it would be the arc reactor from the Avengers. It just specifically because of that, like clean power is something we need. We desperately need. And I mean, you know, second on the list, uh, you know, three, two, one, it's the uh, thing from Star Replicator. Trek. Yeah. yeah. T, Earl Grey, hot. Yeah, that would be my. F- so let's change the question then, because that that's my answer. Yeah. That's the smart answer. So the, the question then is. Assuming we can invent it and then power it with our existing technology, harnessing the light of the sun or whatever, would you, how would you roll that out? Like, would it be smarter to just like provide the information to everybody? Cause you know, that's going to get turned into to bad shit too, right? Like giving somebody the power to replicate, I don't know. Bill, Bill Gates can, can give us all COVID with cell phone beams or something. Or I, I honestly think, like, here's the thing: is that a large part, and then we're going to get into this is this is now like less entertaining and more serious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the real world, a large a large number of our problems are because of the divide between the haves and the have-nots, mm-hmm. right? If suddenly that divide disappeared, a whole bunch of people lose a bunch of power because they they no longer have the ability to say, I control your food. So then the the important question is, how does this technology get ruled out in a way that doesn't widen that gap? That it is for everything. And I almost think that you have to be protective of it. Like I would have to start a worldwide international company that basically just gives everything away and nobody knows how I'm doing it. I have the machine, nobody knows, and you get the world to the point where they're ready for it. You know, you close that gap first, I make don't, capitalism less of a thing, and then I don't, I don't think you can. I, I think, know. I think, I think it has to be a rip the bandaid off painful situation. And I would, I would literally start a replicator replicating replicators. Like that would be the first thing. Like it would be basically, it's a rep rap replicator. Mm-hmm. Right where here's a replicator, and it's just literally spitting out replicators. And I'm and rather than sending the things to people's houses, I would send, I would, I would start a mass campaign. And for ironical sake, I would probably use Amazon to deliver them to everybody. <laughs> and I would literally give everyone on Earth a replicator, and it would show up at their house. It would just show up. Here's a replicator. Tell it what you want, and it'll make it. And there would be an awful lot of really terrible things happen. You know, somebody would, you'd have to put some safeguards into the programming, right? Mm -hmm. Like no asking for, uh, you know, weapons or. Well, and that's what what I guess, like why I'm saying sort of be protective of the technology is because you can put those safeguards in sort of, I mean, if you're just providing a black box, Yeah. but if you're showing other people how to make replicators or you're building something that they can reverse engineer easy enough. Like, it would have to be if you want if you want a replicator, then you ask the replicator to make a replicator, and it yeah. makes a replicator, and it completely and perfectly duplicates itself with the same safeguards. You know, first, uh, you know, like in in order, like 
do not harm any humans. Do not, through inaction, allow any humans to come to harm and obey mm -hmm. a human's orders, right? I mean, Isaac Asimov was here before us in the 50s. Like, almost 100 years ago. <laughs> but, yeah, that would be... I mean, that would be the thing. Because you, can you imagine, um, like, going to a building site, and instead of ordering bricks, you just literally have a replicator dumping bricks out. It's like, keep making bricks until I tell you to stop. Yeah, I, well, I don't know. And that's kind of why, like, I wonder if, if the deployment strategy is, is like, you, you as an organization, I mean, because money isn't a problem for you now, right? Like, I just start replicating the materials I need to replicate, you know, build hospitals, fill that, solve that sort of inequality in the world as quickly as you possibly can. Food, same thing, you know, like, I run an organization that, has infinite money. So initially it's offered like it's, it's operating within the fines of a capitalistic society. Uh, but you, you make your shit available for free to those in need. It doesn't seem fishy at all. Not that, you know, yeah, somebody starving is going to care where their food comes from too much, but you, you close the gap before. I think I think it's it's a good thought. I'm not sure that it would work uh, in, in the same way. I mean, like people, there's been there have been uh, conspiracy theories for years and years and years about you know the hundred mile per gallon carburetor that somebody yeah. invented. Big oil is keeping it suppressed, and I'm sure that big oil is lobbying to keep regulations in place that make their stuff more desirable. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I don't think that it goes as deep as, as a big conspiracy. However, if you, you just have to look at insulin, man, like, yeah, there's, well, that, and that's the thing though, is like, like our, our view of how that would work is very Western centric, like very North American centric mm -hmm. uh, and specifically American centric. Um, and I think that probably the rest of the world would, would view it a little bit differently, but the people in, who are sort of in control of the systems, are still in control of the systems. And as soon as they discover what you're up to, they're probably going to try and stop you. And that's the reason that I say, like, distribute it as wide as you can so that nobody can stop you. And I think I think both approaches have merit. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure which one is right. I just, I just think that they're two different ways <laughs> to approach a problem that we're never going to have to solve. Nope. All right. Uh, what fictional creature or monster would you choose as your loyal pet or sidekick? I would choose an alligator and his superpower would be biting people. That's, that's a reference that you may not get. Oh my no, God. No, I do not get it. I, I All probably right. should feel bad, but no, not really. Um, so it's, it's one that's stuck in my head. Um, it's, it, it came along at around the same time as the candle with the warning on it to say, please do not stick this in any orifice. <laughs> but, <laughs> which I think is aimed at people who are trying to do like ear candling, but it's just like a regular candle. It brings up other images though. Um, <clears throat> we were talking about, uh, it was uh, Kent and I remember Kent. Garlo. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So he uh, he and I were sharing a, a set of cubicles at one point on the overnight shift. We were, we were manning the mentor line, and it, it was super quiet. So we're sitting there, and I, there was a coloring book sitting on the desk for some reason. I think we were just wasting time, sort of flipping through it. But it was it was like superhero based, 
right? And we're coming along and it, we're doing this kind of thing where we're asking each other questions because it's four o'clock in the morning and we're both exhausted. And uh, we were talking about, like, if you were going to be a superhero, what kind of superhero would you be? And I forget what his answer was, but his, his sidekick would be an alligator and its power would be biting people. <laughs> and just, I mean, at the time, it struck me as absolutely hilarious. Now I think it's, you know, mildly amusing. But I'm like, isn't that pretty much what alligators do? Anyway, so a fictional animal as a sidekick. Um, uh, huh. I mean, I want a dragon of some kind. You know, like a big one. Tiamat, maybe. See, funny enough, I, I was thinking about this one earlier, talking to Tanya, and it was like, well, it's your pet, it's your sidekick, it's your buddy. Like, you know, Godzilla would be great, but also incredibly boring. Like, you know, you're not, and, you're not getting the experience of having a sidekick or a buddy there. So I'm still going with dragon, but I would actually uh, go with toothless from how to train your dragon. <laughs> because like, he's, you know, he's still got a lot of the benefits of dragon. Right. But at the same time, like, Hey, there's just a cool dude. You can kind of hang out and like physically interact with in a plausible way. I, I like the idea of, of a, a um, a, one of the original uh, TSR dragons, and the reason reason being is because they're, you know, like yes, they're dragons, but <clears throat> they also have a human form. Mm-hmm. So you could just like hang out and play video games and stuff. Uh, all right, uh, you know what? I'm going to skip this question because we've actually basically answered it on another show. Now that I think about it, if you could have a functional TARDIS from Doctor Who. When and where would you travel to first and why? Uh, this, you know, here's the funny thing is I've answered this question before um, on a message board that I used to frequent uh, called the Chronicles of George. <clears throat> and it was if you could it, basically it came down to like if you could meet any or go to any time and see anything, what would you do? And my answer then and my answer now is the crucifixion of Christ. Mm hmm. Because I'm pretty sure that that was a real thing that happened, and I'd I'd like to, I'd like to know what the actual truth of the reality of that situation was. And it would be interesting to see it, like sort of in the, in the context of its time, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to you know, here's this, this blonde bearded guy from somewhere in northern Europe who is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not going to try and ruffle any more feathers with it, but understanding what he was Tanya and I have spoken about this before where it's like so what was Jesus really like was he was he any different than like say a modern day cult leader except that he was martyred at the right time that things took off maybe yes maybe no yeah it would be interesting to find out yeah you know certainly afterwards Christianity is a religion went in a very different direction and popularity skyrocketed like yep i would like to ah oh man there's so much i'd like to do it'd be hard to to pick a first one there are so many sort of like historical human cultures some of which we just don't understand at all some of which we understand through the lens of like very limited information or distorted. Uh, 
Yeah. And some of them we have all kinds of information about, but it's really hard to understand the mindset. Like that whole sort of pre-Roman empire, very late sort of uh, Republic era Rome, for instance, right? Like first triumvirate kind of period of Mm -hmm. time would be a real interesting one just to understand like the headspace of the average Roman. I mean, I'd probably die of some sort of disease in the first week because, you know, realistically, that's how time travel would work. You know, and you'd like, have to learn Latin and Greek. Yeah. yeah, and not the Latin and Greek you know today either, right? Like, but you know, getting into the mind of of a Roman back then, like what motivated them? You know, we think of Rome as a, a civilization, as a as a culture that is very much like a almost like a proto version of our Western culture. But in so many ways, what motivated them in a day-to-day life, like, you know, something like wealth, for instance, was a tool for for a different type of, of prestige. And, you know, at least as we understand it with the little information that we have, I don't know, something like that, or, or going back and, and, and trying to look at ancient Greeks, right? Not through the, the the lens and distortions of all the mythology, but like what was ancient Greece actually like? What were the Spartans actually like? You know, I Mostly mean, the, naked. The, probably, you know, fucking horrible. Like most people were back then, but at most least getting to now. the bottom of those. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Getting to the bottom of those questions intrigues me. And uh, maybe that's a little bit less nerdy in the sort of mainstream sense and more just like history nerd kind of answer but i would like to change my answer okay um or at least add something that i would like to do i would really like to go and see what uh what this what what the civilization was like in north america before europeans showed up because everything everything that i learned in school i know is pretty much wrong Mm-hmm. Um, part of the reason for that is, is that I literally grew up in a native community and I mean, like I wasn't particularly paying attention at the time, but I mean, I was six, right? How mm-hmm. am I supposed to know? Um, but looking back on it, it's like, oh yeah, things are way different than the, you know, sort of images that we have. And, and we know, or at least we think we know that there was like very much a sort of continent wide functional governmental and legal system i'm curious to know what that was how it worked yeah absolutely all right what nerd hobby or interest have you always wanted to try but haven't had the chance to explore yet oh oh hmm I don't know what what is what is nerdy. I've always wanted to take up painting. I actually have the uh, Bob Ross instructional course on the shelf. It's sitting there waiting until I can, you know. Uh, in theory, that's going to happen when I retire, assuming that that ever happens. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's really nerdy, but it's something I've always wanted to do. I'm intrigued by, and I think I've talked about this before a little bit, but just the whole, the whole way the maker space has evolved and sort of merged and, and just overlaps with each other now. Um, 
you know, where we're like CNC stuff is just not a manufacturing process type thing now. Like it is a hobbyist uh, sort of level process that can be used to do stuff. And I haven't done a ton of CNC, like a little bit of 3D printing stuff. You know, I've, I've, I've been dabbling with uh, it on the design side, trying to trying to figure out Fusion 360 a little bit. And, um, you know, part of it is uh, I'm, I think I told you I want to I've been I've watching a lot of videos and doing a lot of prep, but I want to get into doing uh, resin dice. Yep. Now, not, you know, printing resin dice, but printing dice masters that I can then use to do uh, molding so that I can actually do proper poured resin dice. And like I could have just, you know, used some dice blank kind of STL files and, and, and start there or whatever, but actually getting into to designing like from the ground up, these, what are simple, simple sort of shapes really, but uh -huh. you know, the math behind them are not. The, the, the shapes are, uh, are very complicated. They're the 20 sided die yeah. is actually the very first thing when I, cause I, this is what I do for a living kind of mm -hmm. is that model. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff. And the very first thing that I did when I started sort of learning it was made a 20-sided die, and it took me a week. Yeah. Now I can do it in about 18 minutes, but the first time yeah. it took me a week. Well, even just, you know, like incident angles and trying to figure out the math shit so that you can, you know, create planes that you can then repeat and all of that jazz. But I wanted to do it so that I had, like, complete control over everything, right? Like, just the filleting mm -hmm. on the edges, uh, the intersections of my planes before I turned it into, you know, a solid shape or whatever. Anyway, I think I want to get into that more. Uh, my my project that, that I mentioned before where I want to build a robot that paints was sort of <laughs> my, like, I don't just want to learn, you know, how do I design something and export it in a format that like a, a printer or a CNC router can use. Like, I want to, I want to get behind the scenes and learn how to do my custom shit and uh, actually control, like, work with a microcontroller and control servos and stepper motors and stuff like that. So I wanted to build that paint bot as my, really as my sort of starter course into doing some CNC stuff. But uh, <laughs> uh, that shit takes time, man. And it starts feeling a lot like work when you get into it. Yeah. I was going to say, I'll get your, start there one day. your starter project sounds an awful lot to me, like something that I did at work that we spent a million and a half dollars on and then gave up on. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> we discovered that we could buy it for about 75 grand. Yep. <laughs> okay. So this is semi-related then. And I think you've probably got better answers than I do. Share a nerdy DIY project or craft that you've completed that you're particularly proud of. DIY projects. All right. So building computers doesn't count because I've done that like a hundred times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the very first 3D printer that I got came, uh, I mean, it came from China mm -hmm. um, and it was like the construction quality was reasonable, but the instruction manual had seven parts of which they gave me five. Um, so I was pretty proud of actually printing anything with that, although it never really worked quite right. It was like $350 that I more or less just went, eh, I've been working on it for four years. It still doesn't work. I'm going to give it away. Um, the kid I gave it to, I think has got, got it working and doing all the things it's supposed to do. Cause he's just that good, but I don't know. Um, 
I'm, I, you know, I'm in a, a similar boat uh, to you in a, in the way that I approach these kinds of things where I have these great ideas. And then as soon as it becomes, Hey, I have to do some work to make this happen. Mm-hmm. I just don't. Just don't. I mean, I've started, I've started writing the great Canadian novel, like 13 or 14 times. times. Yeah. Oh yeah. I get three or four chapters in and then I quit. Um, I started making Cindy a paddle for, uh, for the canoe. Um, I got most of the way through that and quit. So complete, yeah. not many, yeah. if any. Now there's a lot of things that I do that like, I rely on my day-to-day nerd kind of work related knowledge. And I, I, that's cheating to do that, right? Like, oh, I just took what I do for work and, and did that to solve a different problem. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we opened a restaurant, for instance, years and years ago. And we're getting ready to open and we're looking at things for like point of sale systems, right? Like, what could we do that's going to, you know, work for us? And like, oh, just this shit's so expensive or it's just so tedious and it's not a good fit for what we want to do. And I'm like, fuck it, I'll, I'll make my own. And spent like three days cobbling together a point of like a web-based point of sale system that, that, you know, this is at a time where like not any store that you walked into, uh, would you, you know, just see people walking around with iPads, you know, and everybody was amazed. Now it was the jankiest shit you would have ever seen. I I remember being surprised by the fact that like it was all being done on an iPad. Like, yeah, this is like, this is future time. Yeah. Like, I mean, I had lots of, lots of people say, Oh man, you got to sell that to me. And I'm like, no, (laughs) There's no way this could possibly work for, for anybody except me and uh, the amount of work it would take to turn it into like a viable product at that time would have been a little more than I could, could probably handle in terms of only having 24 hours in the day while working a development job and, and running a restaurant and whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, but a lot of my projects like that are like solving problems with shit I know. And sometimes it's just weird shit. Like I did something similar. Uh, my in-laws had a, a big wedding anniversary sort of party a few years back. And I was tasked with DJing, you know, playing playing music for, for the Blue Hairs. And <laughs> rather than me just playing a whole bunch of music and trying to figure out what everybody wanted, I thought, you know, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll build this thing. I'll put tablets around and it's basically just a voting system that automatically queued up music and prioritized it for me so that I could just let them choose what they wanted. And, you know, I just had a library of a bajillion songs or whatever. Again, the kind of thing that, you know, you write it in a weekend. And so I don't know, those don't really count. I, I want to say thinking about 3d printing, uh, one of the more satisfying and productive ones that's sort of small scale DIY uh, one of the first sort of scratch belt things that I did was a um, when we put our dog in the back of the car to like take her places, go to the dog park or whatever. Um, we have a like a little mini seat belt thing that we just clip it onto her harness or her collar or whatever, and then it just clips into the the seat belt thing in the car. But it's the style of buckles where like you you just push in on the thing right beside uh-huh. where it clips in, and like she gets walking around the back seat. Uh, she's stepping on it all the time right and like she likes to kind of put her head out the window and stuff so i designed a it's basically like a a a box like it's probably the most simple thing you could design and and 3d print uh just with the measurements of of the buckle and stuff that just it's a you slide the the 
seatbelt strap thing through it, clip it in, slide this back down. And like, if you either have to pull it back up to, mm-hmm. to get under it, or you just got to jam something like a, a key in it to, to push the button, but it prevents her toes or claws or anything from getting in to release it. So, uh, yeah. So I have mentioned that my, my job is actually, well, it's not so much anymore, but my job previously was to design things mm-hmm. to solve similar problems. And I will tell you this, it is very hard to design something simple. Mm-hmm. Um, most people will look at things that someone else has made and go, oh, I could have thought of that. And you're right, you can, but I guarantee you that you're going to start something complicated and then you're going to go, it doesn't work because of this. And it becomes more and more and more complicated as you add more features onto it in order to solve problems that are a result of you solving previous problems until eventually you go, I don't need any of that. And you design a box with a hole in it. Mm-hmm. So jumping right to the box with a hole in it, that's something to be proud of. I suppose. I'm just proud that it worked. I was a little bit snug the first time I did it, so I ran a second print and it was fine. Yeah. It's been, you know, and I I, I mean, I've only got a, a resin printer, so the fact that I even got it to, to, to print because it was one of the first things I actually did a print on itself was a bit of an achievement. Yep. Hey, if it's stupid and it works, it's not stupid. Nope, nope. Uh, all right. Uh, share your nerdiest and most prized possession that holds sentimental value to you. Do I have any nerdy possessions? Hmm. I can share something that I 3D printed. Actually, if I can, I'm going to have to go steal it from my wife. I'll be right back. Wireless headsets are great is where is she hidden it I think I might have actually shown it to you before and now I don't know where it is oh yeah 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 I think I know what you're talking about has she hidden it it's very weird did I steal it that's a question because <laughs> it was like it was right over here now we're it's like a ah, piece of jewelry wasn't it that was very like steampunky all gears and cogs and stuff nope Oh, maybe I'm thinking about something else then. You might be. So here it is. Uh, It is a dice tower Mm -hmm. that I designed and 3D printed. And you can see dice going down a set of spiral stairs the whole way down. And I have some dice right here because I am never without dice. So... And how do I make this work? Let's see. Here's the exit. There's the entrance. And out it comes. And it's just, I, there's like the windows all around. You can actually see the uh, the die falling through it. This, uh, this took more time than I would like to admit to actually get working. Mm-hmm. This was the first thing that I printed on the 3D printer you can actually see behind me here. Mm-hmm which is the Prusa Mini, I would highly recommend that if you're going to buy a 3D printer, buy one from a reputable person and not the one from China. It might work. It might not. If you like tinkering with things, great. This one just works, which I'm old enough now to appreciate. So that's my nerdy possession. Okay. It's not really my possession. I think my sort of most, like, 
prized possessions or the stuff from my youth. I've been trying to reacquire the stuff that I've been missing, but the thing I managed to keep was my first two computers. Wow. Uh, I think you've seen them on my shelf before at my office, but uh, Timex Sinclair 1000, which was just a little like Sinclair Sinclair ZX81 kind of mostly clone with some subtle differences brought over to to the US and Canada. And then the little TRS-80 MC10, which was another kind of like little chiclet style sort of setup. And the reason why they're kind of prized is like when most people got into computing, like they were learning on, I don't know, apples or, or Commodore 64. Like, yeah. Or, you know, pets or, or like old school popular things. And like almost nobody had the Timex, you know? No. Or almost well, they nobody. only made seven of them. Yeah. <laughs> They were a very much like for the masses kind of thing. Like at the time, I think they sold them for like 99 bucks at Radio Shack, which is a lot of money back in the day. We're talking 83? Uh, Maybe 84? Minimum wage was about 450. Yeah. But, you know, relative to like what some of the other 8 bit micros were selling for at the time, like that's pretty crazy. Um, you know, and there wasn't a lot for it. So most of the stuff that you did on it involved you writing your own code. Like, you know, at five years old, I'm keying and basic. And the fact that I still have it and I can look at it and it's a reminder of like my first real step into the kind of nerd that I am today. Um, you know, I tried very, very hard to avoid being the computer guy that writes code all day. And I ended up being there anyway. You know, I'd get gotten a music thing for a while. I got into uh, working call centers and like corporate level sort of training and development, you know, education shit and ended up finding my way back here anyway. And if I'd have just done a straight line, you know, yeah, and that kind yep. of serves as a reminder to me of that. Do they still power up? It's been a while. Um, I don't know that I'd even want to try now. I'd probably want to go in and recap them before I did anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they'd be a little now, bit deteriorated. Yeah, they would have been like before the sort of the, the capacitor plague issues. So they might actually be okay. Mm-hmm. But I'd want to uh, probably You'd just to look. be safe. You know, certainly yeah. the, some of my later stuff, like my, my Amiga. For instance, like I wouldn't even plug it in now. I'd definitely recap <sighs> that just on principle. I had an Amiga up until we moved up here. I had to give it away because it was just, you know, too yeah. much stuff to carry around. Yeah, I got I got an Amiga 1000 without the boot ROM. So you're actually having to... to Workbench. Work from a floppy yeah. and then pull it out. But uh, yeah. I got that later in life. I didn't actually have an Amiga at the time that they were relevant. Uh, it's something that yeah. I acquired because I'm a, a dork. <laughs> Amiga had some of the greatest stuff, though. Like, um, oh, dude, they were. I don't. I don't oh. want to say they were ahead of their time, but the stuff that they could do, it took more mainstream PC computers to like Pentium one thirty three era yep. to be able to brute force the same type of stuff. Like, you know, were they a great business machine? Eh, probably not, but. Almost everything else, like even oh. just ha- having the architecture 
that they had where just everything was sort of handed they off were, to other sort of yeah, ASICs. That, like they yeah. were they were multiple like multi processing at a time when everybody was they didn't yeah. even know what that was. There was the Fat Agnes chip and the Fat Angus chip and uh Eldritch Cats. Did you ever play that? And Speedball. Speedball was awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the whole reason I got it and I never got to do it. Uh, I got the thing so that I could play the Amiga version of fairy tale. Oh yeah. That is a big game. I had books and books and books of maps that I had hand drawn to try and figure out where I was. And I'd always get to the third brother and get lost in the maze and die of starvation. Yeah, I, I played, never got through the whole game. I played it on other machines. Yeah. And the Amiga was, I believe at the time, the superior version of the game. Yes. And that's one of the whole reasons that I wanted to get it. I mean, I could just emulate that shit now, but there's something to be said for the feel and the smell of the original hardware. Like, I'm not snobby about it. Like, a lot of the, the retro video games and stuff I, I play, I play it emulated. I want the hardware to look at and 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 touch oh. but i don't necessarily want to go through the pain of having to like composite mod them if like the only outputs rf or something like that right oh man yeah that was that was actually the biggest trouble because my, my omega did actually work when i gave it away somebody left it out in the rain so it's just destroyed now yeah. um but the the problem what like you needed to actually get an amiga monitor you couldn't plug it into anything else yeah. Or at least nothing modern. No, I had one of the, uh, I can't even remember the model of it, the the Commodore slash Amiga monitor that everybody coveted. Like back in the day when um, retro gaming first started making its sort of resurgence and everybody realized that, oh, wow, these things look like crap on LCDs and, and worse play like crap because of all of the extra input latency and stuff as a result. It was like the monitor to to try and play retro stuff on. And uh, I definitely would need to recap that before I fire it out. It's been sitting in my storage <laughs> room for probably 16 years now. Yeah, that's one of those things that like I had up until oh, up until we moved up here. Actually, I had a, a 286 Luggable. Remember those? Ooh. Yeah. Like one of the old uh, Zenith lunchbox ones, or was it actually a, an IBM? I, I think it was. Uh, a, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. I think it was an IBM. Um, but I mean, like it, it had like an LCD in glorious orange and not quite orange. Yeah, it wasn't black. Um, it, it, it would just, just. I don't know. It's one of those things that I, I look at and I go, like, this is kind of a neat piece of history, but nobody but me is interested in it, and it weighs 150 pounds. And I'm moving, so toss. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I don't. I, I did don't a miss big it. purge of a bunch of stuff, but there are some things where I think I told you that I wanted to kind of start doing like art would be the wrong word, but like a, a nice way to to present some of the old shit that just has all the member berries behind it, right? Like my old. GeForce 3 video card, for instance, like, could I, could I do, you know, do a little shadow box type thing where, you know, I could LED light it, put on a wall and maybe I'm not keeping like an entire computer from back in the day, or I'm not building something that's functional, but I can look at it and be like, ah, I, I remember. good times. Yep. My old Athlon XP 
1800 plus or whatever it was. And oh man, everybody had one of those. Yeah, they were, they were great and affordable for the time, but you know, it's not that I, that chip was so amazing for me, but it was that everything that happened when I had that chip and I can look back and just, <sighs> and that's why I want my old hardware back. Like I don't have any old Commodore computers anymore. Um, those are things that sort of me growing up, I had stuff stored in my, my dad's garage for years and then they did a big purge and, and never bothered to mention, oh, hey, yeah. we're throwing some of the shit that you've got stored here out. And it's like, ah. I hate that. That's one of the reasons like, I'm really looking forward to because we're going through, because we're moving uh, in a couple of months. Next month, it's 27 days. I actually have a timer on my phone. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I'm looking for, because we have stuff that we just kind of farmed out to a bunch of friends where, you know, like this person has that, that person has that. And as trustworthy as my friends are, I'm really looking forward to having all of my stuff in my possession again. Mm-hmm. It'll be... That'll be nice because I had I had a similar situation with well, I, I mean I bought a 1989 Supra and I had it stored uh, at my in-laws place and I took some stuff off. One of the things about the 89 Supra, the Mark III, uh, is that there's like a, a rubber. Uh, it's like an air dam almost. It goes underneath the front grill and almost you can't get it anymore. They don't exist and they get sort of distorted over time. Uh, so they people just take them off and you can replace them with other things. And it, it looks, it looks good. Um, 89. Is that the first year they went front wheel drive? No, Supra has okay. never been front wheel drive. Um, 89 was, was the Mark three. The Mark three was the first year that was it the Mark two. That, that Cause I raced a, an 85. Uh, well, it was actually the, the Celica, but Celica. it was identical to the Supra R- in every way. Mm-hmm. It was before they just used the name Supra. Um, the Celica Supra was a straight six instead of the four. That was the, uh, that was the difference between the Celica and the Supra. Yeah. Well, the one that I had in 85 had the, the 2200 RE four cylinder in it. Right. Yeah. And that was the difference injection and is uh, the, the, the Supra was basically like the, the straight six instead. Okay. Um, and when they, when the Celica went front wheel, the, no, the model after the Celica went front wheel driver, the, the time that the model before, mm-hmm. um, the uh, the Supra and the Celica actually parted ways because the Mark One there was a Celica and a Celica Supra. The Mark Two there was a Celica and a Celica Supra. The Mark Three was the first time that they split off and there was a Celica and there was a Supra and the Supra was its own car. Okay. Um, in any case, so there's this sort of rubber thing that goes underneath the front grill, um, and just because of the way it was made and the materials it was made out of, it would get in the sun and it would get all distorted and people would take them off and throw them away. Mine was perfect. But my front grill wasn't. It actually had uh, some uh, some road rash from various adventures the car had been through before I got it. So I took it all apart, right? And I brought the front grill home because we were living in an apartment at the time. And I left all of the sort of supporting hardware under the car uh, with that, that rubber piece. And my mm-hmm. father-in-law went through that and said, you don't need any of this stuff, right? And I said, yeah, it's all important stuff. And he's like, oh, well, that's too bad. I took it to the dump last week. <laughs> like, oh man like i mean i know it's stored on your property and you don't like clutter but it was under the car like oh my god anyway i'm having trouble letting this go i mean this was <laughs> fucking 15 years ago now <laughs> uh so i don't yeah. like having my stuff at other people's houses because 
I, my experience is that other people don't treat my stuff with the same respect that I do. It's just the way it I is. I get it. I get you it, know. man. That's human nature. <laughs> All right. Uh, where, where do we leave off here? Sentimental value. Uh, share your nerdiest or most impressive achievement in a video game that you worked hard to accomplish. Um, I, for a period of five years, managed to stay at the top end of rating stuff or rating level in EverQuest on one of the TLPs. When it when the when EverQuest first came out in 1999, I was like, oh, I so badly want to do all of this stuff, and I want to go everywhere, and I want to see everything, and oh, what's these raids? I want to go on those, and I just did not have the time to devote to it. Um, so I never got to see any of it. Uh, and then the TLPs came out, and I you know tried it out, and I actually got I joined a raiding guild, which it's oddly enough is literally breaking up next week. Like the guild is. Not dissolving, but they're, they've stopped raiding just because they don't have the uh, attendance to do it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's tough to keep that many people together because raids in EverQuest were... Uh, in original EverQuest, they were open world only and they were not capped. And you didn't actually form a raid. You literally just... Everybody formed a group and you yeah. all went and did the thing. Um, and, I, I mean, I got to see all of the original stuff. I got to raid Sky. I got to raid uh, Nagy and Vox, which was really... Like, those three, three things were the three things that I wanted to do. And we finished them in, I don't know, like nine days. <laughs> right? <laughs> Something that took... like Because when, when the game first came out, I spent a year and got to level 35. Um, and this was like level 50 gear up through some smaller stuff and you know trading stuff around with people and then go and do like the three main raids and it was nine days um but i kept up with it like we we did uh they just went to expansion 10 or 11 or 12 or something and i more or less dropped out of it because it was just it was too much of a time commitment right because you got three raiding days a week plus you've got a you know Grind out your alternate abilities. You've got to farm gear. You've got to do progression. You've got to, you know, like money is a big thing and you got to figure that out. So, I mean, it was like, it was becoming a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, I was pretty proud of the fact that I, I managed to stick with it that long and I was, you know, actually a reasonably uh, competent member of the contributing class of the guild. So that was cool. So mine is uh, probably uh, similar. (laughs) I got into raiding a little bit when I was playing World of Warcraft, ran a raiding guild for a while. Just not my thing. So I tended to get involved in the little sort of side communities and, and really niche shit. And I really got into the Twink PvP community. Now, for those that don't know, I mean... When we're talking twink, we're not talking what most people think of when they hear the word characters that aren't leveled up to level cap, uh, you know, souped up like you might soup up a car, right? Like just try and do the weird shit with them. And sometimes it was it was a process to even like get them leveled appropriately without over leveling them because you can turn experience off before the wrath expansion. Anyway. There was one weapon 
in Vanilla and Burning Crusade, uh, sort of a notorious, infamous kind of weapon that was just impossible to get. Thunder Fury. No, no, this is this is like it's a a weapon that like if if you didn't twink and you found it, like you might disenchant it, like just thinking, oh, <laughs> whatever. It's just it's sort of a weird weapon. Um. So I was building a level 39 enhancement shaman. And back then, weapon speed mattered for certain things. You'd have certain things like wind fury on a shaman, that the damage would be calculated based on your weapon damage, not mm-hmm. based on like some sort of averaged out or adjusted kind of damage per second. It was based on. So having a weapon with a slow swing made a huge difference. And there was very few weapons that had a, a three-second swing with really good max damage. But the one was named Pendulum of Doom. Had no extra like bonus stats on it, really, but was just a beast. And it had a drop rate of like 0.001% from just a handful of mobs uh, in a, a dungeon, Uldaman. I ran now fortunately it was a it was a bind on a equip, not a bind on pickup weapon, so you could just farm it on your main if you wanted. I ran over five hundred runs through that dungeon, and I got one, and so proud of it that I'm like, oh, I'm gonna build out like a, a another weird character like not a not a shaman, I think I was actually gonna do like. Ret Paladins were just horrible at, in that bracket for Twinks. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to build one that's going to be amazing. Just because, you know, nobody would bother to waste this weapon on it. I ended up putting 800 plus runs in trying to get a second one and never got it. Uh, mm. My buddy picked one up in an auction house, I think, for like 30 gold. It was the only time it appeared on the server, like in the months and months and months and months that I was farming. He found it in the auction house for like nothing because it was one of those things like unless you knew what it was, you'd look at it and say, oh, that's it's garbage, it's trash. It's, it's like a level 35 piece of junk. You know, I'm already <laughs> I've out leveled it by the time I'm in the dungeon that drops it. What, what do I care? <laughs> but 500 plus runs to get it the first time to build this glass cannon enhancement uh, enhancement shaman that basically like if wind fury procced. I one shot whoever I was fighting, whether they were a twink or not. Like, you know, <laughs> like I, I competed in like some twink PVP tournaments with it against like classes that like should kill you. Right. Cause like it mm-hmm. was not an optimal thing. It's one of those things where like if RNG kicks in and when Fury procs, you're dead. There's, there's no <laughs> mitigating the amount of damage that I would do. <laughs> yeah, that's neat. That that brings back a, uh, an idea there or a, a, a memory. There was a thing because I played in EverQuest. I played a bard, and one of the things that bards get is a sort of set of like you can get items that you click on and they'll be, make an illusion or whatever. Um, and there's one that I didn't get, which is the gnome illusion mask because it's only available until a certain mob is killed, and that mob was killed like four hours into the expansion launch. Um, but the halfling mask was uh, dropped from one single mob in one single dungeon in the bottom of Shardock from the Foreman something, something Foreman. I forget what it was actually called. 
But I spent because we did, we like it was also a good leveling dungeon. So we spent the whole expansion leveling in that dungeon, doing extra experience in that dungeon. Um, and then after we had out leveled the dungeon, I went back and I parked my character there. And at odd moments, you know, like I get a break from work, I would log on, I would kill the mob, I would camp out. I spent, I calculated, I spent 120 hours farming that mask. I did finally get one. Um, and then after I got one, every time that somebody went into that dungeon, it dropped again. Like it's not, and this is the stupid thing. It's not even that rare. Like it's rare. Like Mm -hmm. you, you know, like I think it's, it's like a 1% drop or something from a rare mob that doesn't always spawn. So chances are like, you're going to spend, I don't know, like 40 hours or something farming the thing. Um, And it was just like, it was forever. Oh my God. Like literally 120 hours of like, it's, it's not even, it's not even a mob I'm getting experience for anymore. It's literally like I can train the entire dungeon down to the bottom. And when they get there, I go and they all die. Mm -hmm. And you just like, you know, like he pops, boom, he's dead. Didn't drop it. You know, he pops, boom, he's dead. Didn't drop it. Yeah, that was the annoying thing about the farming Uldamon for Pendulum of Doom too. Is there's these little, little grogs just like three quarters of the way into what was a pretty damn big dungeon, and there's only like I think eight or twelve of them out of like hundreds of trash mobs in this thing. It's like eight of them or something that dropped this thing at such a low, low, incredibly low drop rate. Yeah. Oof. Well, it's still better than, you know, won the real lottery or something, because I probably had better chance at it. (laughs) I mean, it's better than farming MCPs to try and be a uh, uh, a mealy cat. What were they? The the druid something? The mealy druid? That if you if you farm MCPs and you're able to click them continually, you can almost get to the bottom of the DPS meters as a druid. Yeah. I played a druid the short period of time that we did uh, WoW TLP. We switched from EQ to, to WoW for a little bit, and it was awful. Yeah. No, you just I, did Vanilla Classic. You didn't do Burning Crusade, eh? No. Yeah, no. See, that's we, where you guys should have got in. It was... Yeah. I just... We, we were on a PvP server, and PvP is just not my thing. No. And, like, there was literally a line of my corpses from wherever I started to wherever I was trying to get to. Just always, just, just a line of my corpses. Get good, scrub. Yeah, <laughs> it's just not my thing. No. It's hard. To, it's hard to get good when it's like four rogues who jump out of stealth and insta gib you. Yeah, like I was literally running through zones, casting friggin' heal over time on myself to try and survive the run. That's one of the reasons that uh, my buddy and I like getting into the twink stuff. I mean, we just we enjoyed it, mm-hmm. but also that was the counter to those guys where it's like, you know, oh, there's level capped rogues just camping low level zones. Nothing clears them out faster than when a character 10 levels lower than them comes in and just wrecks them. Yeah. Embarrass them a few times and they just disappear. Yeah. That was one of those things where it's like, you know, like that, like, why do you do it? Why are you camping like a level 10 zone with your level 60 character? Oh, so you call your hot, you get on your mains and come and fight us. It's like, no, because when they show up, you run. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're here because just dicks you have justifying a sick, being dicks. Yeah. You're sick in the head. 
yeah. anyway. Whatever. If you enjoy it, go ahead and enjoy it. I'm sure because there was there was uh, uh, one guild that was camping my when I because I tried to play on a PvP server on like regular WoW for a little bit. And like I logged into the world and I got to level ten or whatever and stepped outside of the safe zone and got like insta killed and there's literally just like a whole guild just circling on flying mounts above, just dropping out of the sky and killing people. Yeah. I'm like, you've been camping me for a week here. Like I'd log in, I'd get insta gibbed, I'd log out, I'd come back tomorrow. I'd come back tomorrow, I got insta gibbed, I'd log out, I'd come back tomorrow. As far as I know, they're still there. <laughs> I'm not playing anymore. Like, enjoy your empty server. Yeah. I guess. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> all right. Share a nerdy fact or trivia that always blows your mind and surprises others when you share it. Oh. I don't. I got nothing. Nerdy trivia. So there is one thing that, that I mean, it doesn't blow my mind because I, I know about it. But like whenever I have the conversation with other people, like sometimes it's it's just even hard to communicate. And that is just how small amount of time humans have been here. Mm. And even smaller an amount of time that like recorded history and humans as we think of them as being, you know, being old, like we were talking about Romans earlier. And like thinking about that relative to the entirety of human history, which is mostly unrecorded. You know, if you want to just to throw a number out and say anatomically modern humans have been here 300,000 years and maybe the genus of Homo for a couple of million currently up for debate. Even that is such a blip in the, you know, the time scale of multicellular life, like even relative to when the, the dinosaurs died out. A couple million years represents such a small percentage, but then you think of it in terms of geologic time and like cosmic time, and it's just like all of a sudden, you know, the the events of three eighty, you know, BCE don't feel like they're all that long ago, even though it feels like ancient history, right? Yeah, it's it's weird to think about time in that way. Like you know, like Betty White was older than sliced bread. You know, like things like that are important. So here's something that just actually occurred to me. If we look at science fiction as a whole, mm-hmm. and when we look at sort of science, a lot of, especially written science fiction from like the 50s and 60s, the sort of pulp era, um, a lot of a lot of it dealt with sort of utopian societies, mm-hmm. right? And how some of them are utopian, some of them are not. But here's an interesting thing: is that very few depictions of utopian societies are not communist, mm-hmm. which is an interesting thought to me. I mean, I don't, I don't think it particularly works because human nature is what it is, but at the same time, it's like, Hey, like whenever we imagine, Hey, what's the ideal life like? And it's, you know, you don't have to grind for a roof over your head and food to eat. Mm-hmm. Huh? I don't know. We're living in the future and I don't have a flying car. So, well, that's the other interesting thing about you think of sort of the sci fi from that era. Um, Their depiction of the future, like, often wasn't 
30,000 years in the future. It was the year 2000. Yep. (laughs) When no one will have to work because machines will do it all for us. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's what it is for me. Just just understanding, like, and sometimes I I catch myself, and I'm surprised by, you know, thinking about history. I listen to a lot of history podcasts and stuff. Like, big fan of Dan Carlin. You know, I go back and listen to his old stuff, and I think about when he's talking about things like the the Assyrian Empire, for instance, right? Like one of the very, very early empires and talks about it as being civilization sort of 1.0. And, you know, it was around basically longer than the time between the fall of Nineveh and like now. And you think of just how ancient that is. And then you realize that's I mean, that's just a blip. Just a blip on, yeah. you know, pick a pick a random scale. Let's not even look at cosmic time or geographic time. Like, you know, Homo sapiens in some sort of recognizable form, anatomically modern Homo sapiens. Like we we think of history as is this thing that goes back to the beginning, but like recorded history just goes back to the last few years, relatively speaking. We have nothing of- from you know, it's yeah. Like what we think is, it's funny how people look at what their perspective is on life and don't realize just exactly how small a slice of everything that is. Yeah. Like, like let's, let's, tiny. let's even think of like archeological history, right? Like if we know we've been around for 300,000 years and we're digging stuff up that we think we might be dating to as far back as like, I don't know, let's say even 30,000 years ago. That's from the last 10% of human experience from our, our, our overall history. So if I had a TARDIS, getting back to that other question, maybe I'd go back and try and figure out what was going on before then. You know, was it, yeah, I'm sure it was a lot of isolated sort of hunter-gatherer societies, but I'm sure there's a lot of sort of buried, hidden like early proto-agricultural societies and stuff that we just haven't haven't found any evidence of yet. There's there's a really interesting thing that when you talk about sort of ancient history of humans too is that we think of we think of like especially cuz we we get the impression from the media like movies and stories and things that that people didn't move around much mm-hmm. and early humans traveled a ton. Oh yeah, absolutely. A ton. So, yeah. Literally yeah. around the world. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. you just have to look at, and, and I know that like our arrival here in North America, uh, and we're actually kind of pushing that back further and further and further as we're finding sort of more evidence. But like, even when you look back at, you know, the latest ice age, when it was feasible for us to cross the the Bering land bridge, like in that time, humans would have made their way from Africa all the way through uh, you know, what would we would look at is, is sort of uh, East Asia, either around the coastline or straight up through the steppes, up into like what is Siberia and, and, and north, like mm-hmm. literally traversing from south to north, basically the diameter of our planet to just cross 
and yep. go about the same distance south down into, into South America where we're seeing like, oh shit, like there's, there were people in Mesoamerica a long time before we thought maybe there were. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's and, some evidence too that shows the, the origin of the human species is actually in Australia. Yeah. I'm actually going to get into the next question because it actually relates to this for me. Uh, okay. Next question. Uh, it's going to be the last question before we get into some tabletop stuff. Share your favorite nerdy or geeky YouTube channel or podcast uh, that you can't get enough of and recommend it to everyone. Now, I have oh. a million answers to this question, but one I guy have... I'm I'm going to recommend just because we've been talking about it and I've just stumbled across this guy. It's not a big channel. Uh, his name is Stefan Milo. And he does a whole bunch of stuff on what we were just talking about, like uh, sort of early humanity and, and like uh, not necessarily homo sapiens, but, you know, the, the development, Lucy. evolution and spread of, yeah, like Australopithecines right up through Homo erectus and some of our sort of more, more modern brethren, uh, Neanderthals. Uh, Denisovans, like all of that sort of uh, hominid kind of stuff uh, he covers. And it's just absolutely fascinating, uh, both the material and, and kind of how he covers it. So Stefan Milo, uh, Stefan with an F, I believe. Check him out. The other guy uh, who is my favorite YouTuber, period, like full stop, doesn't put out enough material but everything he puts out is bangers. And he's a guy that has a absolutely criminally low subscriber count, but everybody in the world has seen his memes and that's H bomber guy. Now, if you don't know who that is, shame on you, but also you, you know who it is. If you've ever seen the, um, uh, the Ben Shapiro Aquaman meme, I don't think I have. Oh, just, you know, Ben Shapiro is. I uh, yes, I do. Yeah. So yeah. where he's talking about, you know, climate change and if the water rises, you, you don't think people are just going to sell their houses. And then they, the meme is the guy busting through a wall and he's like, sell them to whom, Ben? Aquaman? Anyway, that's H-Bomber guy. He's done every everything from sort of like counter commentary uh, stuff on like rebutting <laughs> climate denial and stuff, but he also does like random video game coverage and, and stuff on like TV shows and shit. Um, one of the best YouTube videos ever made, he made kind of in the pandemic talking about the, um, the early sort of anti-vax movement and how it started its roots with literally one doc. Um, and it is both extremely educational and extremely entertaining. So H-Bomber guy, if you don't watch him, check him out. I haven't. I will. Um, for me, there's there's a, a group of guys that I, I recommended to you. And you, I think you mentioned them actually in last episode. And it's Red Letter Media. They do this mm -hmm. thing called Best of the Worst. Uh, we just watched the latest episode actually earlier today. So did I. Yeah, <laughs> they do. It's it's so funny because um, every time that I'm watching it, like even if I have my headphones on, my wife will be in the other room and go, "You're watching those guys again, aren't you?" Because you, you can hear, uh, honest to God, like if anyone on Earth right now is watching and Rich Evans is laughing, we can all hear him. <laughs> Here's how I know I have the the right wife. 
I went years and years and years not showing her that stuff, thinking, well, this isn't going to be something that she likes. Like, there's some aspects of it. Like, I, I have to wait till I get the meta because, like, I don't usually like smart people acting dumb. So, like, I generally skipped over, like, the, the first few minutes of, like, a half in the bag episode because I just, I don't yeah. care about it. Like, start talking about the movies or whatever. But uh, she finally asked, uh, what, what are you watching? And I got her through a couple of episodes of Best of the Worst. And she's a way bigger fan now than I am. Like, yeah. I think secretly she's probably a little bit in love with Mike. <laughs> He's an interesting guy. He is an interesting dude. They're all interesting guys. Yeah. Uh, I would definitely give them a thumbs up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, they're, I, I, I actually stumbled onto them on the Star Wars Holiday Special episode. Um, and it was especially amusing watching them talk for about an hour and 15 minutes about everything except the Star Wars Holiday mm-hmm. Special. Now, I'm going to say something that you probably don't agree with. Oh, shoot. If you watch Red Letter Media... Don't make the Plinket stuff your introduction to them. No, Watch best of the I, worst I do stuff. agree. I do agree. Yeah, I do agree because having having a, a sort of a grounding of of what they do and what they talk about and how they talk about it makes the Plinket stuff much more entertaining. Yeah, like when I first tried to get into them, it was with the Plinket stuff, like the, oh, yeah. actually the Star Wars Phantom Menace stuff way back in the nope. day. It was like. Oh, like I, I, you know what? Like if I can get past the, the smart guys acting dumb shit, I, I mean, the stuff that they're saying here is actually pretty, pretty good, yeah. Yeah. but I just couldn't, couldn't get past that. But once I got into the best of the worst stuff, we were pretty hooked. Yeah. There's, there's some things that, that they will say about, cause of, of course, like I'm a very technical minded person, right? Like, so <laughs> there's, there's sometimes like they will do analysis of things and go like, I don't understand how this works. And I'm like, I completely understand how it works and I understand why it's there. And I completely disagree with what you're saying about it. Eh, but everything else they do is good. So yeah. also don't, don't watch space cop. Until you've what, watched ever? the other stuff, because you <laughs> you got to realize that Space Cop's a joke. It's an inside joke, yeah. It's 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 have all you, a joke. Have, have you seen Space Cop? I've only seen bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah. You know what I think would be a really entertaining thing to do is for you and I and our wives to get together and watch Space Cop and do like a uh, uh, Mystery Science Theater three thousand. <laughs> while watching it i don't even know that i'd want to record it i just would really like to do that yeah uh well you're coming down um could probably jump into the boardroom at my office and do some snacks or something i don't know how much time you got while you're down uh well i we need to figure out a time because uh we're coming down we're actually heading out tomorrow um and i think Tuesday's a, a wipe and I have my stepmother's 80th birthday party on Saturday we're headed home on Sunday. So I don't know. Thursday's a wipe for me. Cause I got a staff event. Then I run D and D Tuesday night. Um, so we're looking at like Wednesday or Friday then probably. Yeah. yeah Friday but... might work. Okay. I'll, I'll talk to Tanya and see what she says. I don't, all right, I'll Think run it by Cindy. Have anything going on? I might be a little bit hungover, but it's fine. We'll give you some hair of the dog. You'll be fine. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, do you have another one you want to recommend? 
Um, I don't. There's not very many that I watch. I mean, I watch a lot of golf uh, YouTube, which is not really nerdy unless you're doing the science of it. Um, and if you're watching golf YouTube, I recommend like almost anyone from the UK. Um, if you watch golf YouTube, you know about Good Good. Go watch them. Uh, they're fun. There's lots of drama, lots of intriguing, lots of good golf. Um, but Rick Shields, uh, Peter Finch. Um, yeah, there's three or four others that I can't remember their names at the moment. But, I mean, click on those. They'll lead you there. All right. If you don't like well, golf, don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> Our AI overlords have some tabletop-ish questions. So let's get into tabletop. All right. If you could design your dream board game, what would the theme be and what mechanics would you include? Hmm. I think, I, I mean, a board game can be almost any theme and you can, can reskin the same board game into almost anything. The 30,000 different versions of Monopoly are a testament to that. Um, one of the things I think that though I would I would absolutely shoehorn in without question is a is cooperative mode. Mm -hmm. I, I find, it, especially as I've gotten older, like we had, we before COVID and we're starting to do it again. Uh, we used to have sort of a board game night about once a month. You know, a group of us from around town. And I always enjoy so much more the games where. Even if it, even if there's like an adversarial element where at least you have teams mm -hmm. where you're working together with people to do something, um, uh, House on Haunted Hill is one that I really enjoy because it's a little bit random um, and it has like some tactical stuff. Have you ever played it? No. Nope. Um, it's haven't. interesting. You cannot play it. To, well, we we faked it to the point where we can kind of play two players just to to get through it. Um, but it's it's like there's a random element and it's everybody working together until the end when one person becomes the enemy. And then there's like uh, a winning condition that is like, Hey, this person can win or everyone else can win. Um, and I find that really, uh, really interesting. But I, I think the, the base mechanic for me is it's gotta be cooperative, at least in some mm -hmm. aspect. So my, my answer is, going to stretch board game a little bit too. Um, now, for some context, I had an idea that I wanted to run a YouTube series. And my answer to the question is sort of the board game version of that. But the general setup for the YouTube series is whether it was competing as individuals or teams, I wanted to sort of have people like stage it up so that here's a budget of $80 or $60. You're going to have a problem to solve. You're going to go into a dollar store or something like that and get whatever you need to build it. So like hypothetically, let's say that you need to build a trebuchet that shoots, you know, a certain distance or, you know, maybe it's a competition for the teams to see who can build the better trebuchet using, 50 bucks worth of dollar store randomness, right? Think of it more like an engineering problem solving kind of game. So it's storage wars or not storage wars, uh, junkyard wars. Uh, kinda. Kinda. Yeah. 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 But you know, budget 
but DIY on the kinda, cheap on the cheap and not all the the other bullshit that kind of went around yeah where, you avoid know the like, drama avoid the drama but also the the special skills kind of stuff too right like you know not everybody can weld not everybody can but you can flex the same muscles in the brain yep so a board game that just as a collection even if it's like small versions of just mundane shit you know hairbrushes and toothpicks and whatever and then some cards with engineering challenges so you're just you're building these like do you ever play the crazy machines games back in the day some of the, the incredible APCs? machine incredible machine yeah that's the one i'm thinking of you know just sort of a not quite like rube goldberg kind of esque type shit but more you know just like with duct tape and 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 popsicle sticks and miscellaneous mundane items try and solve these engineering challenges I don't know. I think it'd be a lot of fun. It probably requires a very, very specific audience. Oh yeah, you know, MacGyveropoly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Question number two: What is your opinion of using digital tools or apps for tabletop gaming, such as virtual tabletops, character sheet apps, etc.? Do they enhance or detract from the experience? Both. They change it fundamentally. Yeah, I would agree with that. Playing playing a game like D&D, just as an example, it's a completely different game. And both are good in their own ways. Both are, are have their negatives. Um, but it's hard to compare them. You know, from an accessibility perspective, like it's it's really hard as adults to get people around a table to play in person. Yes. So in my case, it's play D and D online using these tools, or don't play D and D. Yep, and that's so. and that's been my experience too. Like I'm actually the our. Uh, it's funny. Both of my D and D games have gone on hiatus for the summer this week. Your other one just started back up. <laughs> I know. Well, we're having tr- trouble getting people together because we're playing on Sunday evenings and weekends. Like it's just. Yeah. You know, it's hard because people are traveling and they do things and like everybody else has kids and their kids are home. So now they're doing stuff. And it's just like some every weekend somebody was saying I can't make it. So it just sort of makes sense. I like I think I'm probably going to propose the idea of doing a couple of one shots to them as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And because most of them are actually local, I I think I'm going to do like one of the things that I want to do is uh, set up one of the rooms in my new house as this is where I play D&D. Mm hmm. Um, and had just have a, like an in-person who's here, let's play right with the idea that we're going to play for three or four hours and then we're going to be done. Yeah. That'd be the challenge. And I'm, I'm a picky D and D player too. Like I don't, we got groups that go on in town. Like, you know, we have game stores that run regular games and like, I've thought about going in and dropping in. There's some adventure league stuff going on, but the type of people that do that are like exactly the type of people I hate playing D and D with, you know, I, the, the, the wannabe war gamers and just, and the, I, 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 you know, like I worship Matt Mercer. I mean, yeah. Um, I have a funny story about adventure league actually, cause I went to play adventure league one time and <laughs> I rolled up a bard character started role playing and they're like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, I did. <laughs> 
I did. It was funny because, like my my introduction to D anD I think we've talked about this before. Was was very much with the wargamer crowd. Like we we did um, we did dungeon crawls as like almost a video game. Like the goal was kill the monsters. The the dungeon master mm-hmm. was trying to kill us with proper or with clever tactics from sort of level appropriate monsters. Um, so that was that was the thing. Like you did not speak in character. You said, "I ask the innkeeper what he thinks of this," or "I ask the innkeeper for rumors," and then you hear these rumors from the innkeeper. Um, and like I, I, I don't even think that I had watched Critical Role at that point. I'm not even sure that it had come out at the point that I played Adventure League. But I thought to myself, you know what? Like I want to role play. Like I want to actually pretend mm-hmm. to be my character. So I went in as a bard and uh it was solving a mystery like we weren't even going to roll a whole lot of dice it was like it was printed and the, i mean the dungeon master handled it quite well once he figured out what i was doing uh but i remember what like i was doing uh what's the the bard cantrip uh like, like cutting words or something or? vicious mockery yeah right and i mean i had i had a list i had like literally handwritten out a list beforehand of things that i was going to use as vicious mockery and I think the the first one I used was your mother was a hamster and your father smells of elderberries, right? And and I, I say this to him like it's like okay so combat is starting everybody roll initiative I go first and I I say all right I look at him and I say and I don't even think I said I say I just looked at him and went your mother was a hamster and your father smells of elderberries and he's like what and I'm like I cast vicious mockery he's like oh okay. Right. And I mean, it went on from there and there was a bunch of stuff and sort of all of the other players around the table are looking at me like, what is this guy doing? Like, where did he come from? It was just, it was, like the, it was sort the, of the, the James Franco first time meme. Yeah, very much, very much like that. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of the problem with our, our local groups. Now, I don't know that we have much adventure league going on around here, but we do have regular games and like at the, the game shops, we don't have a lot of them. But they tend to be the old school D&D players that try and play it more like wargaming, like, you know, Matt Mercer's the devil to them, right? Yeah. Like, you know, he's responsible for for polluting their I would their like game. to say that while I appreciate the enthusiasm that the Critical Role team brings to all of it, mm-hmm. I do in essence kind of agree with that assessment a little bit, right? Because it it puts pressure on people to to be a little bit more creative and a little bit well, more outgoing than most sure. people are comfortable with. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, there are a few, like we, we don't have many game shops, but there's like some cafes that run some games and they tend to be the, the other end of the spectrum. A lot of, a lot of young people that like their D and D experience has been watching critical role and getting into yeah. it. And, you know, it's hard to play with people like that because they almost miss the point of what makes a lot of like the critical role yeah. stuff good. Yeah. You know, and I've run into it like, a, you know, I like running games for newer players. And when I bring some new players into my group, like they're often the they look at what the, the, the characters in Critical Role have experienced in the campaigns. And then they write all of that as backstory. And it's like, <laughs> OK, so your character's already done everything now, yep. you know, so it's tough. So it's done. You know, they don't. Backstories are hard, though. Backstories to... are hard. You got to give enough that you have something to work with, but you have to leave it enough. Like, I mean, like you're a level zero farmhand who's literally yeah, just sitting yeah, out yeah. in the world. 
You know, you can't have like you can do. Hey, I was you know like a low level member of the army, like and I basically peeled potatoes for two years before I decided this isn't for me. But I learned to be a soldier. I just didn't really have any adventures. Yeah. Like you could do that, but you know, oh, it's it's definitely definitely hard. And I'm not going to yuck anybody's yum. Like you know, you can. There are talented groups of players with the right chemistry to recreate the critical role magic. Sure, but that can't be the bar that you hold no. all groups to. And it takes takes some of the players where that's the only D&D experience they have, like through actual plays online, some of the, the better ones, to, to really realize, well, no, every group's going to find their own thing. Yep. Yes. And my players have all found that. Like, that is not a criticism at all of, of, of my guys. But getting back to the question at hand, like playing in person with real people around a real table, my options are limited at like I either play at this extreme or I play at the other extreme and I don't really want to play at either. So I play online no. and because of that, I'm able to be a little bit more selective about the type of people that I play with. Like, you know, I, I want to play with people that I like when we're not playing games. Yes. You know, if I'm sitting across from somebody that like, if we weren't playing D and D right now, I wouldn't want to hear them speak. Like they're just a <laughs> dick or yeah. whatever. You, you know. don't want to. Yeah. If, if I can't stand the person, why, why would I want to, to play D&D with him? And maybe that's a little bit elitist. Maybe, maybe I'm the dick. I don't think like, so. We're all, we're all here to have fun. Yeah. And like any other social activity, you got to have the right mix of people. Like you got to all get along reasonably well. Like you don't have yeah. to all be best friends. Like that's the no. other, the other thing that a lot of people ignore when it comes to the critical role thing is like, these are people that have been both personal and professional friends and colleagues for years and years, years and years before you ever yeah. saw them yeah. on stream. They, they have already developed all of the chemistry that you see. It's not like they just do that and that's how it works. Like you, yeah. you'd need to develop that over the course of years. Yeah. And, you know, you hear the the people that, you know, quite often from the other extreme that are like, oh, critical role scripted, obviously. You know, they're all actors. Oh. Like, how else would it work out this way? And you're like, no, it's it's the result of that type of chemistry that they have. And also the innate yep. talent. Like, you got a bunch of voice actors around a table. You know what they're going to do? Act. They're going to voice act. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, there's, yeah, like, there's also, like, the improv skill that exists around that table is, is remarkable. Yeah, bonkers. Bonkers. Yeah. And I mean, it's like, I, I don't, I don't, I definitely don't want anyone to think that I don't like it. Cause I do, I, I love critical role, but it's, it's in small doses for me. Right. And there's just, mm -hmm. there's too, there's too much for me to consume of that. And it definitely has had an influence on the way that I role play and the way that I, I DM. Yeah. Right. Like there's, there's no doubt that I like, it's, it's, and I haven't actually watched, game. like I started watching some of campaign too. I think Tanya and I kind of petered out after, um, like this is recently watched, so I'm, I'm going back and watching old material. Uh, I think we got like ten episodes in, and it was just like, you know what? Eh. No, it was great. Like we were enjoying it, but it's just like, you know, three, it's too much. Three and a half hours an episode kind of thing. Like just fitting it in yep. was getting hard. Um, you know, and Tanya and I watched uh, like some actual play stuff uh, even before Critical Role was popular, but certainly afterwards we got into the sort of Penny Arcade and the Acquisitions Incorporated stuff. Um, if you're looking for something that's kind of good middle of the road in an actual play, 
uh, don't watch the main acquisitions incorporated games, the stuff that they do at PAX on a stage and stuff. I mean, that's all very good. But they ran for several years uh, a weekly stream called The C Team ah. um, that had some people that became some some bigger names eventually, like Kate Welch, for instance, who ended up working for Wizards for a while and then very much not so. Uh, kind of cut her teeth in, in D&D through this game and, and, you know, some other charismatic people, but like, you know, some of them were new D&D players for episode one. And um, it's a very much a different style than, than Critical Role, but also has a lot of sort of things like a lot of draws, a lot of, uh, you know, appealing merits, like uh, Jerry Holkins from, from Penny Arcade is the dungeon master for it. And I mean, I really love him. Some people find him annoying and I don't blame the people that find him annoying. <laughs> I get why some people would, but I, I find him just, he's my kind of funny. He's just the way he twists words sometimes just tickles me in the right spots. <laughs> and it's not for everyone, but I would suggest that like, if you're trying to find a manual minimal, middle of the ground kind of actual play to get into acquisitions incorporated the C team it had its run. It's, it's over now. Uh, so like you can watch three seasons worth of it. You know, there's not, not the, the big body of work like there is with critical role. I think all three seasons is less than one campaign in CR, uh, worth of stuff to watch. Um, it's basically all theater of their mind type stuff. Um, so it's it's pretty easy to watch on screen too. Um, has all the the sort of typical live show kind of things where there's some audience interaction type stuff in it. They were sort of one of the earlier ones to get into like real time audience kind of stuff, and just fun. If you are going to watch Critical Role, I would highly recommend skipping Campaign One and Campaign Two and watching Deadwood. Yeah. Yeah, it's a short. It's a short run. It's like six or six or eight episodes. It's really it, it's it's a really good sort of dip your toe in and see if you like it. Yeah, and I hadn't watched it actually. You know, aside from just getting into it now, the only critical role I'd actually watched was like uh, the Darrington Brigade one shot. Yes. Yeah, that was good. Is that the one where they fight a rubber ducky at the end? I don't think so. No, because that that was a, a live thing that they did on stage. Yeah, this was, was a live one as well. But I, I yeah. think it was, I think it was a different one. Anyway, yeah, they've done it a couple of times now. All right, how do you approach character creation in tabletop games? Do you prioritize mechanics, backstory, or a combination of both? It's a combination for me. I generally think about. Um, and this has evolved over the years because originally when I first started, as I say, I started playing with Wargamer type people. I really focused on numbers, right? Um, and we did like 46 drop the lowest in order. Those are your stats, right? And that would really drive sort of who do I think this person is. Mm -hmm. But I've always, I've always thought about like uh, a character concept first. Um, like if you've ever read uh, Terry Pratchett's Guards, Guards, Guards series, um, there's a, a character named Carrot who was raised by dwarves, but he's, I don't know, like six foot four or something. Like he's very obviously human, right? And he's, you know, sort of rightful king of the land, except he's too good of a person, so he doesn't do it. 
Um, and I remember creating a character based on him and everybody in the party and the DM hated him, right? Because he was lawful good, but also kind of goofy and stupid, right? Not, not stupid, but like uh, doing the right thing in a goofy way. <laughs> um, and I, I'm sure that I didn't role play it very well, but at the same time, it was just, <laughs> just the I- idea of, you know, somebody who's who's got everyone's best interests in mind at all times. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily like my party and getting us ahead. It's like I don't want to get rich. I want to do the right thing for everybody all the time. Mm-hmm. Very, very annoying character. So I, I usually approach it with a, a sort of an archetype in mind. You know, like somebody from a TV show or a movie or a book that I've read. And I start there, and then I sort of like tweak and you know twiddle knobs until it gets to something that I think will be fun. And then apply rules to it until it, you know, meets the criteria of this is a character I can play. So I think it, you have to ask yourself first, what type of game are you playing in? Right. That's like important. if it's a full campaign, like you need a character that is going to be fun in session one, but also is going to be fun in session 31, you know? If you're playing a one shot, like that's your time to get silly. A character that isn't going to have a lot of depth, that's got a short shelf life in terms of being annoying for other people at the table, but like in small doses is just going to be a lot of fun. Um, I think it needs to be a balance in both cases, though. You know, Uh, I was watching some. a video series. It's actually was done by Yahtzee, uh, Kroshaw from, uh, zero punctuation punctuation stuff. The, uh, rest of the stuff that he did for uh, extremist. Anyway, he did it like a development series on, on, on video games where he actually did like 12 games in 12 months. He had to develop just like indie small scale games. And he did a lot of talking about like core gameplay loop. Like ignoring the story of a game, ignoring the 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 plot, the the development, all of the other stuff. Like, are the things that you're doing from moment to moment fun? If they are, then build off of that. But if they haven't, then fix that first. Yep. So, building a character that you think is going to be mechanically fun, especially if you're going to be doing it in the long haul. Uh, is interesting. And that doesn't need to mean it needs to be complicated, right? Sometimes it just means, can I take the mechanics of playing this character and narrate them well? Like playing something as simple as a, like a human fighter, most boring combination in the world can be a lot of fun if if you you can have fun with it, you know? Take those tools that are available and do something with it. Um, Tell one a story. Of the, yeah. Now, one of the most fun characters that I did, have you ever, and I want to say that, um, uh, what's his name? Did a, a video on it. Um, uh, Puffin Forest. Okay. Yep. About uh, the build Murray kind of uh, character builds. No, but I remember, I, I remember his one level of every class character what was what was that character called was that absurd absurd yes absurd yes yeah uh no I, I, no maybe it wasn't him that talked about it maybe it was um 
I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name. Another guy that does some does the animated spell book. Uh, oh, I know who you mean. Uh, Zubashu. Um, yes. Um, yeah, I think maybe he's the one that talked about the Build Mary stuff. But uh, the idea of dice control, right? So like playing a, a halfling with with lucky and the, the lucky feet. Oh my God. Uh, divination wizard with portent. I ended up building for one shot that I ran uh, with my crew or another care. Uh, one of my players was DMing. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Let me just pull it up here. So I am uh, divination wizard two, wild magic sorcerer one, uh, tempest domain cleric four, and okay. almost everything about this character was just like taking taking a role like a like bad dice or whatever and just being like nope <laughs> I'm not accepting that <laughs> uh, whether it was taking advantage of, of lucky or or portent or um, tied to chaos or like there's all sorts of mechanics that kind of played well together it's not optimal. And it would be a nightmare to keep track of in a long campaign. But for something like a, a small campaign, succession mini campaign, or even a, a one shot over a weekend, like those are the kind of things that you're probably going to get more mileage out of the mechanics than you would a uh, sort of interesting backstory that you don't have the opportunity to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to do some... Uh, some one shots and I had a hard time getting some attendance because like we were juggling multiple groups of players at the time with active games too. And I was doing it in the summer uh, on weekends and we got a few games going and uh, the whole shtick for that was that it was going to be think of the Dungeons and Dragons version of the Expendables, the movies. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, I ended up calling it the lucky sevens, but the idea is like you, you need to like pick a stereotype, you know, whether you know it's an 80s action hero stereotype or you want to be like this is the only game in the world where it's it's totally fine to play legolas <laughs> right like in most yep. games if you're just going to come to a game and like you know legolas lol like that's your character yeah you're not gonna have fun you're you, you know the the joke's funny for half a session and then it's like oh okay actually legolas kind of sucks and everybody's making fun of me but in this game where the whole idea is like pick a pick a shallow stereotype because like you're going to use it for one session. The characters are disposable. I'm Batman. If you want to play Batman, play Batman. Yep. You know, uh, or think of the mechanically fun kind of stuff and play it like that's where that stuff's really, really cool. But if you're going to be playing a campaign or something that's got like legs, you, you need... definitely got to balance mechanically interesting with like. Not a not a deep backstory, but something that gives you like something to build off of. Your character something has to, to have do. motivations, right? Why is my character yes. doing what they're doing? Why are they with this party of maybe they're strangers, you know, people that all have their own agendas, but like for for some reason we're gonna all work together. Yeah. Why? You know, don't. Yep. Going back to what I said about some of the inexperienced players from the the CR experience where they wrote all of these crazy backgrounds, like their their epic story happened in the past. Yep. No, it needs to happen in the future. You know, like it's okay to maybe come into your story in the middle of it, but you have to have somewhere to go. 
Yeah. It's okay. It's okay to have somewhat of an epic backstory if you're doing like a short series of something starting at like level 12. Mm-hmm. Like you're already a, like a major hero, right? The reason that you've been called is because you are a major hero and now we need your help. Like, yeah. help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like Obi-Wan's story is in mostly in the rearview mirror. You know, and you're coming in for sort of the swan song part of your adventure. Mm-hmm. But you can't do that for a, hey, we're starting at level one. You can yeah. do it starting at level 12. And I think, I mean, you can certainly turn like, so, you know, I don't always relate like epic story to high level character. You know, sometimes it's just you've been through some shit. And I think you can do as long as like your epic story serves as context for your character's current state. Like that can work. So, you know, the character I played with your game, for instance, Dex, like he was a pretty boring character, really. But his basic setup was like, you know, he had a bit of a military background and then he kind of realized, wait, we're kind of the bad guys. You know, fuck this. And he sort of like exiled himself from his society and that sort of drove everything else that he was doing, uh, which led to him. You know, becoming a, a, a an adopted parent by accident, and and that sort of was his, his key motivation. But mm-hmm. you know, all the subtle stuff was like trying to atone for not only the shit that he'd done in the past, but also the shit that like his people had done in the past. And and that was fine. Like, there's an implication that like, oh, all kinds of shit went off. But I didn't write all that backstory. It's just like three sentences in a paragraph of. Oh, like he worked his way up to, you know, a military commander and then got ordered from the top to do some really bad shit, like genocidal shit. And he just fucked that, turned his back to his city and home and family. And that was fine. Well, and that's a reason for adventuring too, right? Yeah, absolutely. Here. Yeah. You know, but if it's just a laundry list of epic things you've achieved and then you find that you're the stuff that you're going through now like doesn't marry like you know sometimes your campaign's going to start out even at the mid levels where you're whacking rats yep and you know you can't have oh i'm the the prince of such and such and i'm you know although okay to turn that on its head it you can you can do that right yes you can do that right i think you could play an interesting character where i am the prince of such and such and i've done all of these amazing things is just stories that you tell people to try and build yourself up could be a really interesting character. Could be. Yeah, but you'd have to do it right. Like you'd have to it's it's one of those things where if if the player and the party and the DM are in on the joke, then it's a funny joke. Yeah, and you have to you you have to do work for something like that, right? Because when the question comes up, which it will, is like, hey, we're we're dealing with kobolds in the sewer, man. Like, why are you here? Like, you better be able to answer that question with some bullshit yes. at that point. Yes. You know? Yeah. Like, you gotta I'm you gotta here, stick to the bit. I'm here to teach you lowly newbies about how to kill kobolds in the sewer. Yeah, and then roll badly doing it, because that's the way it's gotta go, right? You that's know? the way it's gotta go. Well, I mean, the other thing is, too, is that you could, like, immediately it could become apparent that you're completely incompetent at everything. Um, and then you've got sort of two paths to go. You can either, you know, come clean and go, all right, yeah, I'm just, I'm just like you guys, which is, you know, good for character development. Yeah, absolutely. Or you could completely go the other way and deny reality and 
entirely, which is another kind of character development, which lets everyone else develop a little bit before. Mm -hmm. But at some point, I think like, if you're going to play that, you do have to come clean. Mm -hmm. There has to be that that denouement of your um, of your character to say, like, I've realized the error of my ways and now I'm going to grow as a person. Yeah, like nobody likes a poser. So if you're going to play a poser, you got to, you know. This, you got to go one of two ways. You have to yeah. lean into it super hard or you have to give it up fairly early. Yep. Two or options. you do the real reverse twist and like, you know, when everybody finally thinks that you're about to come clean, the rest of the party finds out that, no, actually it was all kind of true. You were just an idiot <laughs> or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, or yeah, I'm you were a curse. prince and yeah, you did all of these things, but you sucked at all of it. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, the only reason you've, you've still got your head and you weren't thrown out a window is because you were smart enough to run away or something, right? Like something. Yeah. Uh, I apologize uh, if you hear my dog barking out there. I think um, Tanya just got home and let her out and she's, uh, she's got the zoomies or something. Yeah, well, dogs will be dogs. All right, a couple more questions, then I think we'll call it a night. It's been discuss, a long one. It has. Uh, discuss your favorite fantasy or science fiction book series. Uh, and I will actually extend that to be other things as well, just because I think that's more interesting. Uh, so discuss your favorite fantasy or science fiction series that you feel would make an excellent setting for a tabletop campaign. Ah, okay. So I don't know about the favorite, but here's a slightly controversial um, answer. Have you ever read this series? I forget who wrote them, but they were like a pulp series from back in the 80s. And the, the first one, I think, they made a couple of movies out of it. I think it was called Tribesmen of Gore. It's, oh my God, it's, it is the most racist and misogynist bullshit that you have ever encountered in your entire life. Um, the, basically, the premise of the entire series of books is that um, the Earth has a perfect counter-Earth on the other side of the sun, and we've never seen it because it's in perfect orbit on the other side of the sun. Mm -hmm. um, every once in a while, some kind of conjunction happens, and people from Earth get transported to Gore, which is the name of the other place. Um, and on Gore, um, it is accepted that uh, women are built only to be slaves mm -hmm. and, and some of them don't know it. And like, it's absolutely awful. Like it's written by somebody that you think is maybe 12 years old. Yeah. But a lot of the sort of, if you, if you chop that part out of it and I'm not sure that you can, um, the idea of a counter earth where every once in a while people go, Right, I think it would be more interesting to have Earth as a setting for that science fiction series, and someone from that society came here. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I don't shit. like. There's, there's I a, remember there was it's, something it's terrible. that recently came out, and uh, one of the D and D ish podcasts that I listened to, Dungeon Master of None, talked about it. I can't remember the name of it. But it had sort of a similar vibe, but it was uh, sort of an Irish Celtic kind of thing where there was this like this convergence that had happened. And then there's just yes. like, this, this fairy kind of face city thing, but like coexisting with, oh God, I can't remember the name of it. 
Is it, is it, was it, uh, there was a novel by Guy Gavriel K that was sort of a, uh, some students from the University of Toronto get transported into the past or an alternate universe. No, it wasn't that. No, this, this, this had very much sort of a, a sort of a fae fairy, like fairies existing in on earth kind of thing. Um, I know that, um, uh, what's his name? He did. Macros the Black. Uh, oh, oh, this is one is... of those things where, like, you know, fairies that could actually do magic, but they were treated as like second-class citizens. It was sort of an exploration oh, of okay. like racism and and right. whatnot. Like, it definitely had a lot of of sort of political overtones and and whatnot. But it um, had that kind of vibe. I mean, another one that's interesting uh, is just the Witcher stuff. Like I know yeah. everybody's played the video games, but like if you get into the books or the show's starting to explore it now, like the convergence of the spheres and and whatnot, it got sort of touched on a little bit more at the end of the the prequel show, which oh man, they did that one dirty. Um, uh, yeah, I don't have Netflix anymore, so I haven't watched those. Look at you being responsible and not just downloading stuff. What happened to you, yeah. man? I grew up. I got gray in my beard now. <laughs> um, part of it is just there's too much media to consume. I mean, like the thing is, is that like when I when I think about settings for role playing games, I often think about uh, like really complicated ways for things to work. Like I really enjoy um, oh the Dragaran, the the uh, Daenerys, and and what you call it? What the oh, heck yeah, is yeah, that the, called? The Song of Game of Thrones. Fire, Game of Thrones. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like I really enjoyed the books. I haven't, I haven't actually watched the TV show. I watched the first first season and went, "Hey, that was pretty much like the book." I bet you the rest of it'll be good. And then I heard some things and went, "I'm not watching the rest of that." <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what? For the first few seasons, it, even like everything up until the point where they got ahead of George R. R. Martin was fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, at that point now they're they're making stuff up, but I I, I like the idea of doing like a complicated setting like that. Um, and my experience as both a player and as a DM says to me that, you know what, the world needs to be simpler than that. Mm -hmm. Um, like there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of sort of, uh, inclination for me at least to do things where there's lots of shades of gray and you want to like explore things and how things work, but you know what? It's a game. Things need to be very much good versus evil, right? I, whether like orcs are evil, that's it's, it's just taken as for granted. Don't don't explore the oh, you know, are orc children evil? Do they become evil? Like yeah. you either have to have good and evil, or you have to have a very sort of mature table that can go. We can have this this exploration. Yeah, this. and that's like, and I like I definitely don't like the the sort of racial type casting sort of direction. You know, orcs are evil. I don't either. And and I get why some people do it because it, it's sh it's shorthand, right? Like yes, but it definitely takes a mature group of players to sit around a table and fit into a game that has a lot of nuance. Yes, you know, um, and like the world that I set up. Hard. Yeah, like the worlds that I set up in my homebrew probably have a lot more more gray in them. And I think 
I don't know. Like you, you still need to have a, like an immediate carrot and then like, you know, you stage your, your lore and world out and like, this is the immediate stuff. This is sort of the, the, the longer term stuff and the real long term stuff. And I think if you, you make the immediate stuff a little bit more black and white and cut and dry and, and give that other stuff time to stew, maybe you can pull it off, but it's definitely hard to drop people into a game where it's like oh for any of what you're doing initially to make sense you almost got to read a novel before session zero well there's also like when you think about uh, like how the game works like you need inversary whoever that is it could be it could be like because there's all of the the narrative things it's like man versus self it's versus the environment versus you know blah 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 right and I mean, in real life, honestly, most of the time, it's it's not good versus evil. It's just us versus them, and whoever whoever us is is us, mm-hmm. right? And whoever them is is the bad guys. Yep. But if you lived over there, then us is a different group of people, right? And mm-hmm. in a, in a game, you kind of want it to be a little bit more obvious who the bad guys are. Yeah, unless you know it's your goal to create that sort of moral ambiguity and and have your players question themselves as like, hey, are we 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 actually the good guys here or something? Yeah, but you Did have we to just slaughter a whole town of people who weren't really bad people. Yeah, oops. oops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, know? we tried it. It was hard and it was difficult, and no. people felt bad. So yeah, um, I think the 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 universe that I would pick. Um, now there were technically books written about it, but it's a video game universe and series, and that's the mass effect universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the challenges with taking the fantasy universes or, or sci-fi universes or whatever that we love is that take Lord of the Rings, for example, like Lord of the Rings doesn't work if there's 156 Gandalfs running around, right? There are seven wizards. You know, it's hard to allow people to play what they want, right? I want to be Gandalf. Nope. Right? Let's face it, they'd all be Legolas anyway. Right. But, you know, whatever. Heroic character X, it's hard to let them be what they want when they're leaning on like the most heroic of, of heroic archetypes and then create a sense of progression. Now you can do it for one shots easy. Sure. Or you can put a neat spin on it. Like there's nothing better. I don't know if I've ever had asked you if you've watched it, but dimension 20 did um, tales from the blood keep or escape from the blood keep. Sorry. Uh, which was sort of a parody of the bad guys from Lord of the Rings. Uh, it was a mixture of like um, Dimension 20 and some crit roll. Like Matt Mercer was a player in that game. Uh, Brennan Lee Mulligan ran the game. Uh, Erica Ishii and uh, a couple of other players were there. If you haven't watched it, watch it. It's like six episodes, seven episodes or something like that. Uh, just absolutely brilliant fun. Would be hard to recreate as like your own game kind of thing. Uh, but it's an interesting take on doing something like that. Uh, but the nice thing about the mass effect universe is it's like an interesting universe from like, a you know, alien races and, and, and 
sort of cultural standpoint and, and like exploring different types of archetypes, but there isn't this crazy sort of like power imbalance. Like even the main sort of heroic story that happened in the series, Commander Shepard and his crew, was just this ragtag group of heroes that persevered, you know, in the face of all sorts of adversity to, to uh-huh. ultimately save the day. The bad guys were big and, and sort of formidable, but the heroes are just regular people. people, whether they're humans or, or Krogan or, or Asari or whatever the different races are. And that particular universe just lends itself so well, I think, to exploring all the different kinds of gameplay you could work into a tabletop role-playing game, you know, whether you want to get into like political drama, diplomatic type gameplay, whether you want to get into, you know, espionage and sneaky, sneaky rogue stuff, whether you want to do combat type stuff, stuff that is, you know, heavily focused on infantry style combat, whether you want to, you know, melee uh, ranged, whatever, whether you want to get into ship combat and, and deal with some of that kind of stuff. Like it just it has something for all of that. And yep. there's no obvious sort of like, you know, you could be Commander Shepard in that game, like play that type of character because he's just a regular guy, you know, and when everybody else gave up, he chose to fight and and that's what made him great. And he had the right crew with him. And uh, there's more stories in that universe to be told, you know, like their big epic sort of story that wrapped at the end of Mass Effect 3. Um, no spoilers. I haven't played through it. Uh, I tried or I started it and we never really got anywhere with it, but I started running a, a, a game, not using D&D as a system, but with our my own little homebrew system that sort of picked up immediately after the end of Ma- uh, Mass Effect. Because like it ends with world changing shit happening and yep. now it's like, oh shit, now what? Yep. You know? Yeah. And uh, there's... There's a few other things like that that could work. Like I, I, I really enjoy the idea of a cyberpunk game. Mm-hmm. Um, the The trouble with with those kinds of things, though, is that like there's so much like real world type stuff baked into it, mm-hmm. right? Um, Mass Effect to a degree as well. Like you're doing something like sort of semi modern with extra technology, which may as well be magic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting idea to think that like the problem with starting those things up is that like, who are the archetypes that exist in that space? Mm -hmm. It would be interesting to see a fantasy story with a group of people who are just regular people becoming the heroes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's been done. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, like there's, I know there, there is, I have never played it, but actually an RPG for Firefly, like that'd be another one that we've talked about before would be a great sort of universe to explore. You know, you've got lots of avenues for like escalating bad guys and stuff. Um, and everybody else in that world's just people trying to, trying to, trying to get by. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that doesn't, doesn't mean that you don't create characters that, are special, you know, the, the characters are special and, and they're skilled in their own way, but it's not, um, you know, it's not Gandalf around every corner kind of thing, right? Like it's, it's not everybody's you know, a Jedi. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the games that I've been running most recently, it's sort of a homebrew world built on top of Forgotten Realms. And like, we're all based out of this main city named Hope, which was built on the ruins of Waterdeep. And and sort of the big contrast is that like, we're in Waterdeep, like there, there would have been a wizard standing on every corner hawking magic wares and, and doing spells for shit. Like it is a, it, it starts off at least as a, as a low magic world where all of that shit's gone and starting to bubble back up through the surface. So it allows your characters to be special, right? Like you're one of the very few magic users in the world. And I, I that can all kind of develop, but I don't, it's really hard, you know, what, what was it when, uh, uh, the Incredibles, when, when Syndrome said, you know, when everybody's super, nobody is. Yep. Everybody's special is just another way of saying nobody is. Yep. Yep. I don't know. There's, there's a, there's merit too, though, in, in everybody being super powerful. Like imagine like uh, the immortals in Marvel kind of did this where, you know, like here we are on the moon and everybody's got a superpower. Like what happens when everyone has a superpower? It's, it's more difficult to manage, I think, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting story. I think Mm -hmm. we should, uh, we should wrap up fairly shortly here. Yeah, no, I, uh, I think we'll skip the last question actually. Um, and leave it at that. Uh, that was the pod bag as brought to you by our AI overlords. Um, We'll get back to real questions from real humans-ish next episode. So if you want to submit your question to us, it's uh, podbag at nerdingundertheinfluence.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Catch us on YouTube. Uh, We've been doing some new YouTube shorts. Put these live on on the YouTube channel if you're listening to it in audio form. Or if you're listening to it on YouTube, catch us on any of your usual podcasty places. Apple. Google, Spotify. I Googled us today just to, to see if like the oh, yeah? website was showing up in search results. And there's like all of these other aggregators that have picked up the show, just scraping like the, the Apple podcasts feed. It's like ice. Yeah. Next week we might be replaced by chat GPT. It's true. I am a robot. Hey, if you want to give us a review or, or like us, uh, that'd be awesome too. You know, yeah. only if you like what you hear, if you didn't like it, well, tell us to fuck off or something. Yeah, or anything. Interact with us in some way. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man, it's been good chatting to you. We'll uh, catch you later. I'm going to roll that out.